We set sail on this new sea because there is new knowledge to be gained. The new rights to be won, and they must be won and used for the progress of all mankind. Any thoughts, Joey? Um, a new world. <laughs> Paul, you know it? Master and Commander? Oh, I was trying to do my best JFK impression, and there's even a little hint in the end of the quote of All Mankind. It's the, the documentary on the Criterion Collection about going to the moon. <laughs> ah. Season 3, Episode 6 of the Average Joe's Movie Clubcast. It's Justin. And I'm Joey. And in this episode, we are joined by a very special guest to chat about director Paul Thomas Anderson's quirky take on a neo-noir film, Inherent Vice, from 2014. Plus, in my Wheel of Destiny pick, we'll experience the traumatic hours following the assassination of John F. Kennedy through the eyes of the First Lady that strived to preserve his legacy as we talk about Jackie from 2016. And just a heads up, we do discuss our full thoughts on films, so if you have not seen a movie, please just skip ahead to avoid any spoilers. And if you want to be a part of the Movie Clubcast, make sure to hit that subscribe button, leave a comment. We would love to hear from you. So like we mentioned, we got our third guest ever on the Average Joe's Movie Clubcast. Welcome, Paul Keelan. Hey, how's it going, guys? I'm glad to be part of the Elite Club. Only three guests, so it's pretty uh, prestigious territory there. Uh <laughs> So um, me and Paul met because I had posted my raving review of the Mighty Ducks like about a year ago and like almost instantly like you're like, hey, I like your take on Mighty Ducks. You should come on my show. I was like, oh, you got a show? Cool. I got a show too. Did you know that? And you're like, no, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, it was definitely like the ducks that brought us to together. Uh, Gordon Bombay is a true uh, uh, uniter of kindred spirits across the country <laughs> and yeah. uh definitely I, I liked your uh, way of writing like a ton of bulletin points just kind of like a moment by moment mm -hmm. uh off the cuff spontaneous synopsis of like your thoughts on what's going on with the film and yeah. so i invited you on and we had a good talk yeah absolutely it was cool because um yeah i've really seen your show you know, really grow leaps and bounds like since i listened like after we first talked i listened to your pilot episode about kind of because uh, you do the um, Cinematic Underdogs podcast where you guys talk about all kinds of sports films, right? Why don't you tell, tell us about that? Yeah, 
sure we should introduce it, I guess. Um, yeah, it's cinematic underdogs. So it comes from like, of course, the sports term of being an underdog. So many sports movies are underdog films. Uh, and there's always the feel good films. They make you uh, inspired, they're rousing. They hit the feels, hit all the beats of those emotional, manly uh, pulls that bring you into movies um, and take out that, uh, like that emotional uh, soft spot deep inside of us. So we, we definitely try to tap into that, but we do some headier ones too. So we have a good balance. Yeah, you guys kind of have a vibe like me and Joey do because uh, I know me, you, um, me and you, Paul, are really into art films and. Um, and your uh, co-host Jordan, he was more into like sports movies, and you guys try to find a, a cool mixture there. Absolutely. So Jordan, I would say is I don't like to talk about other people's tastes so much, but mm -hmm. if I had to pinpoint it, it was it would be that he's more into um, I'd say blockbusters, uh, big big superhero franchises. He's a super big fan of sitcom comedies like The Simpsons and Family Guy, nice. um, whereas I really like sort of obscure, abstract, uh, stuffy European art house films, so <laughs> I'm the snob of the two, um, but we balance each other out, um, and so uh, it, it just, it really is a good uh, yin and yang, let's call it. We're, we're best friends for life, we've known each other since we were basically born, um, nice. lived on the same street, so we go back and it's so it's just easy between us as well so yeah <laughs> definitely i i didn't I, I didn't know it was so similar to you and joey so joey what are you some of your favorite uh types of films um so i definitely you know you're about blockbusters i i you know kind of grew up more on that um and as doing the podcast with justin and with my roommate who i've mentioned many times before um he's been my roommate now for almost four years it's definitely expanded my taste but um if it's got any sort of strong female lead, uh, Kill Bill, for example, um, or super stylized, so all of Quentin's stuff, basically, mm -hmm. um, Marvel. Um, but then I also like really apparently like um, noir films, um, musicals. <laughs> um, I, it's kind of grown and went all over the place, but like. So it just really depends. I think sometimes I keep Justin guessing because oh, apparently absolutely. he did not expect me to uh, react the way I did to the to the movie that we're going to talk about here in a bit. So I'm curious myself actually because these are both I would consider art house films. I would say P.T. Anderson's mm -hmm. much more accessible. Like he's a little artier, a little more intellectual Tarantino. I'd say like our great auteur of the past thirty years, twenty thirty years. Absolutely. That people gravitate towards and every three or four years he's going to put out something that is just monumental like Tarantino uh, but Tarantino is amazing he was kind of my gateway director I remember seeing Kill Bill and I think I was 13 did not know what the hell I was going to go see mm -hmm. it just blew me away it was, oh, it was man. never the what, same yeah. way to make me feel old you're 13 watching Kill right. Bill I say that I was like 18 but still yeah just a few years yeah, yeah. but some... maybe I was a few we had some common ground at first, uh, Joey, because you had first introduced me to Goodfellas. I'd never seen that before, and then Boondock Saints. And so we had a blast watching those kind of guy movies together. So, um, and yeah, my, I wouldn't say my, uh, I, and I'm pretty similar to Joey in where I kind of grew up. My dad was into a lot of um, blockbuster kind of movies, and it wasn't until um, I kind of had my um, kind of a late life renaissance where I, I was gotten really more into um, 
art house classic films, foreign language film. Just I just have this inner desire to watch like all the greats. So that really attracted me to like the, uh, the Criterion Collection and just to um, yeah really explore all that you know movies have to offer. And it's it's been so neat seeing all the different interconnections. Like you'll be watching a, a movie like. Um, the Phantom Carriage, and then all of a sudden you're like, "Hey, wait a minute! That's that Kubrick got, stole that scene for The Shining. What, what, what the heck?" And it's it's really awesome to see those interconnections. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, uh, and I love seeing um, any sort of callbacks in movies. So, like we've already mentioned, Kill Bill is my favorite movie for anyone who hasn't watched this podcast before. Um, but you know, I've now made it my goal. Like I'm picking up, like I've picked up clan of the white Lotus. I went and got lady Snowblood. I went and got, um, lone wolf and cubs. Pretty much anything that was like referenced in those movies. Like I've made it my goal to watch or own, um, which also has led me to really enjoying a lot more Japanese cinema. Mm -hmm. Um, also like exploitation films. Um, so like the, spawning just from that movie, it's spawned a, a lot way. And between Justin and Carl, and now there's you know the Criterion Channel and the Arrow Channel, and so it's just expanded a lot. So Paul, uh, you lived overseas for a long time. How do you think that um, kind of changed uh, your perception of movies? Um, you were in Korea, right? Yeah, absolutely. So that was like my second renaissance with movies because. First was college, and I went mm -hmm. uh, to a very like liberal school with this little art house theater that constantly played like uh, French New Wave films. So Godard was like every week, or Kurosawa was like every week, and Sony Oni. So it was just like the way of life there. So I definitely got introduced to like Truffaut and all the French 60s directors there, mm -hmm. um, and Jim Jarmusch types, um, you know, the sort of newer auteurs that, that reference back to those types of filmmakers. but. In Korea, I was on my own, and I was kind of homesick, and films just became my, my like, mac and cheese, let's call it. I just, like, lived yeah. in films. I could watch, like, 14 a week. Uh -huh. uh, but it, it definitely ranged from, like, high, high brow to low brow. Like, I loved everything. Like, uh -huh. uh, I loved uh, the comedy Paul. That was one of my favorites with Seth Rogen. I don't know if you've ever seen that one about kind of a little alien. Um or Horrible Bosses, I thought was hilarious at the time. Or I, I would watch, um, you know, uh, like very, very small uh, indie directors from Thailand, like the guy who uh, made uh, a few films that are really hard to pronounce, but like Tropical Malaise is one of them. Uh, Cemetery of the Splendor is another. So there's, there's a ton of directors I became also familiar with just because I was traveling to these areas and trying to seek something out that I could connect to on a uh, meta plane, like on a narrative plane. So yeah, that definitely opened me up to foreign film as well. And just understanding mm -hmm. those cultures give you an insight on like, like a movie like Parasite where it's about a tutor in yeah. a Korean household. Like I tutored rich Korean people in their household. So it's like very familiar to me. What on? Uh, do you recall any of the Antonioni films you saw? You saw you saw, you saw that on the big screen. You said that must have been yeah, quite the experience. Yeah, I definitely saw some Antonioni. I think um, we I saw the the Brisky Point, um, okay. and perhaps what's the one that has the word red in it? Red. It's like starts off red desert in her red desert, and she's like in this kind mm -hmm. of swampy marshland in the very beginning. I, I saw that one on the big screen. Mm -hmm. um, and 
the most famous one where they end up on the island. Um, yeah, La Ventura. La Ventura, I definitely Yeah, saw. that's so, the only one I've seen. Um, his whole ennui styles, uh, you kind of have to be in the right mood to, to dive into that stuff. I think you you, bl you blind bought that one, right, Joey? Can't wait to hear you uh, talk about it. Yeah. Yes, I did. I did blind buy it at Second and Charles. That uh, just basically went in one day, and I guess someone had probably just upgraded their collection to Blu-ray, or I don't know, was just getting rid of it. And I just blind bought a whole bunch of Criterion's. But pretty much any time I go to any sort of secondhand store, and they've got Criterion's that I don't have, I just buy them because I'm a crow, and those numbers are shiny, and I I gotta have them. So. <laughs> That's awesome though, because if you're if you're entering into Criterion territory, then you're gonna catch up with Justin real quick, because that's where it's at. Yeah, but see, Justin watches like 17 movies a day. He's probably no. watching three right now. <laughs> okay, I'm being hyperbolic. Excuse me, but yes, you you all you do for fun is watch movies, whereas I play video games because also it helps with my job, and then you know I yeah uh, well you know play Magic and binge TV shows and that kind of stuff that Justin doesn't do. So he just, it lends him to watching, watching more. But yeah, no, I have a pretty decent Criterion collection because I tend to go ham during the sales. And like I said, if I go to second and Charles or a pawn shop or something and they've got Criterions in good condition, I just, I just take them. So, well, buy them. <laughs> I guess I should clarify. I don't take them. I yeah. buy them. Do you collect Paul uh, physical media at all? I don't actually. I'm okay. very much digital. Uh, okay. Much much respect to all those who do though, but don't have don't even have a DVD player <laughs> at hand. Uh, my wife likes our house to be quite minimal, and I do too actually. So it's kind of for that reason as well. We keep things like uh, as low quantity as possible but i'd love to see a good collection in someone's room like a good vinyl collection or a good dvd collection yeah it's just awesome yeah i grew up with a whole big wall of dvds in my my dad's house and then my wife wants them as hidden as possible so i got i got a little collection but um yeah probably not as uh joey has quite the uh the showcase i believe um isn't does your new place have some shelves Stop. Yeah, well, we took we took the bookshelves, um, well, I guess the, bookshelves, the media shelves from our old place, both Carl and I. So if you walk directly into our apartment now, the dining room is like immediately like you're just in the dining room, basically. And on the wall, there's each one of our shelves, which are his is literally almost full now. Um, had to rearrange everything when he got the, the Battle Royal Arrow humongous set just recently i've got a little bit more room especially since i have some of mine separated out like because i've got tarantino and the mcu and star wars separated and then the criterions for everything else i have a little bit more room but it's like it's getting close like to, to being full um and then i have another shelf here in my room that's got books on it but it's also got like all my tv shows which i haven't really added to recently but it used to be back before i had like netflix and all of that I was big into getting TV show box sets. So, right on, cool. Well, uh, let's move into the next part of our show where we just kind of talk about what we've been up to lately. Uh, I'll keep this pretty quick. So, um, yeah, I decided to be a t-ball coach this season, and this will be the first and last season I am ever the head coach of a t-ball team. Because, uh, uh, yeah, hurting cats and parents at the same time is uh, it's a little much for me. I much rather be 
more on the sidelines <laughs> even though i do like to cut like i, I made up a really fun cheer because we're the hammerheads so i was like what time is it and the kids say it's hammer time which is, is so much fun but um the, the the kind of the bad thing that happened is i kind of stepped into the role really late in the game and so i ended up with a lot of the kids that weren't like didn't like pre-select kind of where they wanted to be with the certain coaches because they already had experience and so we were kind of starting uh, behind the eight ball there and so we've had kind of a rough season and then like last night's game there was like a bad call and like the umps started like cursing at one of our coaches and so like half of our parents left so we were forced to forfeit the game so i've pretty much seen it all this t-ball season um but i am looking forward to soon um I'm getting the opportunity to uh, MC one of my uh, older son's games. So like I like was going all through like all the jock jams and stuff and trying to com compile all this music that I'm going to be playing whenever I finally get a chance to MC his game. So looking forward to that um, and going camping this weekend. It's been a long time since I've been uh, camping with my uh, scout pack. Um, kind of been away from them due to the whole t-ball thing. So I'm really looking forward to uh, going being out in the great outdoors. Um, I've been long working on this uh, service project to get this kind of a leadership award in Scouts. And so I'm finally getting that uh, this, this coming weekend. So real excited there. How about you, Paul? What, what's, what's going on in your life? Well, congrats. That's cool. Uh, when you talk about T-ball, it makes me want like a really good film about youth sports coaches, not like kicking and screaming, which is okay. I, mean, I laughed a few times at the any Will Ferrell film. Bad News Bears was a great release. In the middle of the season. Is, yeah, it's true, Walter Matthau, right? With the, the drunkard who, who gets uh, slowly warmed up by the, the kids. Yeah, yep. I, I, that's a great one. But I, more, I, I think it's just like such a right, right topic to make a lot of good movies on. <laughs> um, but yeah, in terms of things that are new with me, um, just trying to stay busy writing, um, both mm -hmm. for my job and for extracurricular projects. Yesterday I had my third article published by a cool website called 25YL. So Correct. if you're listening, yeah, check that one out. It was on uh, The Mountain and the sort of recent filmography of Rick Alverson. So he made uh, Entertainment with Greg Turkington. He made the comedy, um, which is really, really hilarious sort of um, strange film uh, that, that satirizes kind of millennial hipster culture in New York City. Huh. Um, and he just made The Mountain with Jeff Goldblum. Uh, and that, I think, is his, like, I called it his masterpiece to date. I would say maybe not quite there yet, but interestingly enough it hits some pc anderson beats i've also had a really cool uh article there on there about jim carrey's comedic style and how he had a a renaissance with sonic i, I love his role in sonic i mean it's a middle yeah. film but he's amazing in it mm -hmm. and i also have another take on i care a lot uh, the netflix film uh, that came out this year that was quite polarizing and I have a very polarized take where I just like try to leave it open-ended with questions about what the film was actually trying to say. I was left quite puzzled. And so I just wanted to kind of explore that in mm -hmm. an inquisitive manner. So yeah, that's pretty much what I've been up to. So I'll pass the baton to Joey. All right. So anybody that's been uh, listening for a while knows that I've been without a car. I finally, finally, after many trials and tribulations, 
have a car that I got a good price on. I got it from a buddy of mine, ended up needing to sell a car. Um, and in the East Coast gas crisis that's happening, gas crisis in quotes, um, <laughs> having a hybrid with only eight gallon, an eight gallon tank is real nice. Um, Neat. Yes. The uh, Prius? Uh, it's a Honda Insight. Okay. Yeah, it is. It's like ten or eleven years old. It's a 2010, but I was driving a 06 before that, so it's newer. Uh, it gets insane gas mileage. Um, so it has a hatch, which is what I wanted. Um, if I could have, you know, made it happen, so it, it worked itself out. Now, what sucked was I I sold my Xbox One, trying to get more cash to get to a car, and then I ended up. This cost me a lot less than I thought. So I sold my Xbox for nothing, but I still have a PS five. So I, you know, I guess it's fine. Um, <laughs> um, and then I'm getting pretty hyped on Friday, uh, the 14th, uh, the mass effect trilogy comes out, uh, the mass effect remaster trilogy. Uh, so I'm looking forward to doing some, some sci-fi, uh, gaming there. Uh, Probably I went renegade on the first time on the 360 and just killed everybody. So this one I'll probably try to be maybe maybe middle of the pack or I'll try to be good, but I don't think that'll happen. Mm-hmm. And then lastly, I've been picking up. I've been listening to a new podcast um, called the Sonderlings Podcast, and mm-hmm. uh, they don't really have anything to do with movies. It's actually like a tabletop RPG podcast. Um, it's actually uh, run by a buddy of mine, um, like D and D. Yeah, it's like D and D, but it's not D and D. It's called Troika, and or Troika. I think yeah, I think it's pronounced Troika, and um, it's basically D and D, but the system, like how you deal damage and go through stuff, is a little bit different. It uses mostly D six instead of like D everything. Um, so, but it's been a lot of fun. I'm about four episodes in, so if you're into that kind of stuff, you can find them on YouTube. Spotify, wherever podcasts are, Sonderlings, S-O-N-D-E-R-L-I-N-G-S. And that's all that's been going on with me. Cool. Let's get into some movie talk. Uh, we like to break the ice and uh, come up with the movie pick'em game. So uh, Joey is going to introduce two movies, and me and Paul will say which one we'd rather watch right after the show, if we were forced to. <laughs> all right. So I'm going to go uh, do the Walking Phoenix Showdown. Mm-hmm. Since uh, we're gonna be talking about him here in a bit, and uh, so, what would you gentlemen rather watch, her or walk the line? I'll let you take walk the, the reins first. Yeah. Yeah, um, definitely her. I have only seen it once. Um, crazy as that is, and it's kind of an amazing film from what I remember. It's got that great melancholic tone. Mm-hmm. And anything that Spike Jones does is just worthwhile, and it's worth revisiting. I think one of the most underrated films is Where the Wild Things Are. Okay. Uh, he His uh, version of that, I love that movie. I saw that with a bunch of friends on a kind of a road trip, and we snuck in some <laughs> beers and just had a, a real blast with that movie. And, uh, I mean, dating back to his Beastie Boys videos, I mean, Spike Jones is just epic. So that, that would be my choice. Sweet. Uh, kind of a funny story about her. I um, was on one of these uh, like Criterion uh, Facebook pages, and I'm like, all right, y'all, should I watch her or Antichrist? And people were like, dude, you couldn't pick 
possibly two different movies. <laughs> and, um, I think I went with Antichrist first, which I probably should have went with her. It's much uh, less traumatizing. Um, but I digress. Uh, I would go with Walk the Line just because I love that movie so much. And it's been a long time since I've seen it. That was surely the movie I... Um, really fell in love with Joaquin Phoenix as an actor and I was just totally into his performance there. I was rooting for him to win the Oscar, but um I mean I gotta give it up to uh Philip Seymour Hoffman. He was great as Capote, so that was that was definitely well deserved there. Um enjoy her too. Definitely need to get back to that one. Um definitely enjoy some Spike Jones directed movies. Um but yeah, Walk the Line would be uh, my first choice, but I enjoy both of them. How about you, Joey? I think in this situation, I would probably pick Walk the Line um, just because I have not seen it in a very long time. Like I saw it probably two or three times in a pretty like quick amount of time. You know, like I saw it in theater and then, you know, like it came out on, uh, you know, DVD and it's like, oh, I watched it. And then someone else hadn't seen it. So, you know, I watched it again. So, you know, I watched it in like pretty quick succession, Mm -hmm. but I haven't seen it in a long, long time. Um but her was so good and so powerful. And like, I don't know if I would like, I really enjoyed that movie. I think, I think it was last year, the year before I watched it, it was in like my top four or five for that year, but it was like, you just want to rip your heart out. Um, (laughs) And as good as, I mean, and Joaquin was great, but like there was no love for ScarJo in that movie. And that's uh, pretty, that hurts, that hurts my heart, but probably, just because I haven't seen it in a long time, walk the line, but both were fantastic. Right on. All right. So next we're going to go into uh, what we've been watching lately with our the good, the bad, and the ugly. All right, Joey, uh, what are your three? Um, My three are oh i've blocked them all out um style over substance uh gangster and stan okay paul do you have uh, three categories yeah uh can i use one from tonight or should i use different ones um use different ones uh, just since we'll be going in such detail with the the feature movies in a little bit well, that's a good point all right so for the good because i'm new at this um i'll say from Dust Till Dawn, I just revisited that. Okay. It's classic, and I loved it again. Uh, the Bad, Mortal Kombat, the new one. Okay. And The Ugly, oh, that's a hard one because I kind of cringe-liked it in The Happy Time Murders. Okay. Like, it's with Melissa one. McCartney, right? Yeah, with Melissa McCartney, and it's really risque. It's raunchy, jokes through and through. It's kind of a one-note pony. And I cracked up the whole time. I thought it was great. So uh, I guess we don't like our raunchy comedies anymore, but I'm down <laughs> for a good one. And I, it's, it's definitely a neo-noir. And mm-hmm. it took oh, okay. Muppets really seriously, like their physiology really seriously. So like there's a forensic scientist in one scene picking up Muppet fluff and putting it into bags. Um, <laughs> I, I just cracked up. I was dying started to finish. So I, I kind of recommend it, actually. Uh, I, I'm kind of reversing my opinion here. So it's on Netflix, everyone. Check it out. <laughs> Look, Me and my, I uh, love raunchy uh, comedies, so yo, that's, that's, what, that's, that's where we're at. Check it out, then. Check it out. It's, it's hilarious. Me and my uh, wife have been really into watching uh, Name That Tune on Fox, and um, 
right after name that tune is some new Muppet comedy show. And so, like, I was kind of watching the fierce, like, because we, we were always watching Name That Tune on demand. And so they would kind of, like, start playing the next episode or the, the beginning of the next show. And it's like, <laughs> there's a puppet for uh, Kanye West and one for Kim Kardashian. And they're talking, like, in divorce court. And it's like, I'm really intrigued to see where this goes from here. But uh, I hadn't taken time to watch it yet. What did you say your first one? Uh, normally we space these out a little bit more, but that was cool that you ran through yours quick. Uh, what was the first one you said? I said from dusk to dawn, but I kind of almost want to change it. I, yeah. So, I mean, of course it's great, Robert Rodriguez. And just mm -hmm. like, I love how they would really let themselves saturate um, their movies in a, a certain scene and really just draw it out. Like today it's cut, cut, edit, edit, new new setting, new setting. And mm -hmm. uh, Tarantino and Rodriguez really would steep in a setting uh, from like the opening uh, uh, kind of contextist, Liquor store, I forget the exact name, it's on the tip of my tongue, with the cop. Um, we like should know, me and Joey should know this, we just reviewed this movie a few weeks I'm, ago. <laughs> I was about to say, yeah, we just did this, Justin was a little mad at me, as you know, I uh, cheater picked this for a Tarantino movie. <laughs> <laughs> Is it a Benny's, it's something like Benny something, it's got B&B, &B. Um, and then hmm. there's the the other place is like the titty something. I don't know. Yeah, titty, titty twister. twister. Yeah. Titty twister, thank you. It's always alliteration. Um, and I think mm -hmm. the liquor store is like Benny something as well. But probably, probably so. But I don't think anybody remembers it because it, the, everything on the inside is so crazy. And then, the, you know, the whole thing gets blown to shit. So. Yeah. <laughs> In the best possible way. Um, the other one, though, I wish I kind of said was One Cut for the Dead. Uh, one okay. Cut of the Dead, actually. Have you seen that, either of you? Not yet. I heard it's real meta, right? Yeah, it's super meta. It's one of those one-talk, uh, one-shot take films, but it's only okay. like a third of it is a one-shot take. Then a third of it is uh, sort of three months in it before that, then preparing for the film. And then the last third is the one-shot take again, but from a different perspective. And Neat. it's just a jubilant film. Like, it's just so fun. And full of like love for cinema, you have to see it. It's it's very much like a, a tribute to uh, independent filmmaking, and it just has like such a rapturous love of movie making from that gr grassroots level, just oozing out of it. It's so so good. I, I totally recommend that. You both love it. I'm sure. Cool. All right, Joey. Um, tell me about your gangster movie. All right. So this is actually two gangster movies. Um. And they're from Korea. It's called oh. My Wife is a Gangster. One and two. <laughs> uh, so essentially in the first movie, there's this woman. She's like the number two of the Korean crime syndicate. Um, but the, like the number one's basically not there. So like everyone just calls her boss. And she finds her long lost sister. And her sister is dying. And her only request is that she gets married. So she finds like has her thugs go out and find her some husband. Um, and then there's just all these trials and tribulations. Like she doesn't act like a lady and you know, the guy's all mad. And then, you know, there's all sorts of gangster fighting. It was just a really interesting dynamic. Um, and she's like the ultimate ombre. Like she's a total bad, badass. Um, they're called the scissor gang. She actually fights with scissors and then she can like pull them apart, almost like tricking the hidden blades and, um, bloodborne. But like, it's crazy good action scenes. Uh, and then in the second one, she has like amnesia 
and doesn't know she's a gangster and like stops a robbery and then gets her memory back and does more gangster shit. Um, but my only thing that I really hated was that uh, I had been trying to watch these for a while and you couldn't stream them anywhere. There's no Blu-ray release to like import from Korea. There's just like $40 DVDs. And I was like, I would have paid $40 for a Blu-ray. I won't pay $40 for a DVD. So um, our good friend um, Johnny, uh, our good friend Johnny hooked me up with, with his copies. Okay. They just weren't the best quality. But, I mean, they were good enough for, you know, getting getting to watch. So, All right. So uh, my categories, I still haven't spit this out yet. Um, so I have Oscar Spoiler, uh, 80s Sweat, which I think uh, Paul will appreciate where I talk about with that one. And uh, new Hollywood style. Mm. Let's well, let's let's find. Let's go. What's your eighty sweat? All right. So I was so I was I was a guest recently on Paul's Cinematic Underdogs podcast. It was a great time talking with them about a hockey movie I'd never seen before called Young Blood, starring. Um, gosh, I'm blanking on his name. Um, what's what's the main actor's name, Paul? Well, it's not Keanu Reeves. No. And it's not Rob Lowe. It is Rob Lowe. Yeah, Rob Lowe, that's it. Okay, so, um, gosh. Yeah, this movie was like, I was like, am I watching Footloose just with hockey? And um, it, it yeah, was... Yeah, Patrick Swayze is in it too. Yeah. Oh, it's, yeah. Wait, I'm in. Let's go right now. We'll just stop recording. I'm going to go watch this. You said Swayze and Keanu. Let's go. Yeah. Joey was very pleased this season when I finally decided to watch Roadhouse. And so I got to see uh, another Swayze film this year. Um yeah. If only we could have done Point Break, you know, to keep the Swayze Keanu uh, tag team alive. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, this is a super <laughs> cheesy film, but there's a lot of good hockey stuff in there, too. Um, like towards the end, there's all these different montages. I'm like, oh, that's kind of a Rocky moment. Oh, that's kind of a Karate Kid moment. And um, yeah, Keanu plays a, a goalie in it. And he's actually apparently he was a goalie in like. High school or something so he has a he has a few moves unfortunately he's not in it very much um kind of a cheesy love story um there's a part where they initiate him and they go in the locker room and they shave his junk it's like ugh, who does that um as yeah super fun time um uh, talking that about that with paul we went into a lot of detail um you know when that that might be out paul yeah it's gonna hit the uh, airwaves i'd say sunday saturday or sunday Nice. My life's been insane, and I like to go through it and really clean everything up. So it'll hit it soon, but it'll be out there by the time probably this is out there, um, or hopefully by the time listeners come across it. So check it out. It's really it's gonna be a fun episode. I'm halfway through it. Awesome, awesome. Yeah. So yeah, definitely check out the cinematic cinematic underdogs as well. All right, Joey. Uh, style over substance. All right. So uh, this is my second movie this year. My third movie overall. From Mr. Um, Warkong Y. Uh, did I just butcher that up? Well, I, I say Wong Kar Wai, but tomato, tomato. Yeah, I, think it's, I think it's Wong Kar Wai, but who the hell? Okay. I mean, but it, it, oh. not who the hell cares, but it's as long as you're a fan, that's, that's all. It's so subjective. Like, I listen to this yeah. one podcast, and instead of saying anime, they say anima or something. I'm like, yeah. I, no one says it like that. Uh, I don't know. It's so subjective. Yeah. So anyway, it's from the WKW box set. How about that? There you <laughs> go. Which apparently has a bunch of issues. Aren't people like saying that like some of their discs are messed up? Um, 
so when I still had my Xbox, my Xbox wouldn't play a couple of the discs, but my PS5 played everything, and our region-free Sony Blu-ray in the living room played everything. So, okay. which my I've discovered the PS5 is also region-free um, for movies, unlike the PS4 was. But um, either way, I um, we this watched is, Fallen Angels, and this, and this is ironic movie. because I think I, me and you were talking about um, Wong Kar Wai at one point, Paul, and I think you're like, hey, you definitely need to check out uh, some more of his movies. I think Fallen Angels was one of the ones you recommended. Absolutely. I'm going to let Joey go first, but I'm so stoked to talk about Fallen Angels a little bit. Cool. So, um, it's my second one this year, because um, I watched In the Mood for Love earlier, and uh, this one I liked more than In the Mood for Love. I did not like it as much as Chunking, um, which I watched last year. But it's just, like, I, I everything about the movie, the movie was just freaking cool, but it was is one of those things where I definitely felt like there was more style in his style than actual substance to the movie, but I didn't really care because it was just so damn cool. Um, and I would, I just, I remember, you know, now I remember the, the end scene with the motorcycle, which is what's on the box and everything. But um, like, I just remember watching it and just the whole time, just, being mesmerized by what I was seeing on the screen. I don't, I'm bad. My memory is bad. So I don't remember much of the plot lines like a month later now, but I just <laughs> really enjoyed it and would probably easily watch it again. Isn't that one a sequel to, uh, is it in the mood for love? No, that one I think is a standalone. It might be in some weird universe with other ones, but okay. I mean, fallen angels is, as you said, a lot of style and the substance is pretty thin, but the style is just, so magnetic like mm -hmm. you'll have this assassin cleaning her apartment or they'll be in a mcdonald's in hong kong and you're mesmerized it's like the most beautiful thing you've ever seen and it's just so cool it's so like freaking cool to watch whether they're on a motorcycle or uh just going up and down escalators it's kinetic mm -hmm. the camera movement is like just pure virtuosity at all at all points it's there's so much panache and style and flair that you can see why Tarantino was so influenced by Wong Kar Wai. And I get why you probably like Chunking the most because Tarantino loves Chunking. He took like so much inspiration from that film. And the characters yeah, that, are so addictive in that one. It, 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 that, that makes a lot of sense. I actually, um, like I knew that he presented Chunk, like it was a Tarantino Presents Chunking Express, but I didn't realize like that he like, um, likes WKW so much, but that makes that makes a lot of sense. It also, I was talking about this with my roommate the other day. It makes sense, or like I will talk about stuff and I will put stuff together, like pop culture references and stuff that, to me, make perfect sense to connect in my head because of whatever connects them in my head. But everybody else is like, "What the fuck are you talking about?" And it's like, <laughs> I watched the Quentin Tarantino documentary and they were talking about him doing that same thing to all the things that meant something to him. I'm like. That's where I picked that up from. I just just did it. No wonder I enjoy it so much. Like, so. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I actually was fortunate enough. This is how groovy my school is. Is I like had a class that did Fallen Angels as one of its weekly assignments. So like we watched nice. it, and our professor talked about it, and it's the coolest professor in the world. And he just went off for an hour and a half talking about like its sense of temporality and its like immersiveness. And he was basically riffing poetically on it. Like, he didn't have anything really, like, substantial to say on it. 
but he was just he was almost mirroring the sensibility and style of the film mm-hmm. talking about how it just places you in this world and you're immersed in it and you just kind of exist with it and a very vague and abstract terminology he was using but it was it was so uh formative in, in my young movie like uh career I'm, I'm not a career but like my my enjoyment of film he definitely influenced me with, with that lecture and that movie when i saw it so epic so i'm, I'm stoked that you saw that joey it's great yeah I, I, go ahead justin um just real quick that um i haven't even seen fallen angels but just the way you guys talk about it just sounds just so much like in the mood for love so i know i'm kind of in for and i'm you know, looking forward to finally taking that dive man justin could which you were at school longer than me, but I was just gonna be like, man, if we would have had some sort of like excellent film class to watch. The only thing I remember was having for whatever that freshman class is that we took, we had to um, we had to watch American Beauty, which I ended up borrowing from Jake. Mm-hmm. But we never, had, I never had to like a class where we just watched movies and oh, that would have been that would have been so boy, awesome, been so sick. Oh my god. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, besides Fallen Angels, his teacher showed us the Life Aquatic. And Cassavetti's Faces, um, and Hiroshima Mon Amour. So like, it's just wow. epic films, and always had something really amazing to say. And there are mm-hmm. podcasts on it out there. Um, I can't think of it on the top of my head. It's something about like the image of the image. Um, so for listeners, his name's Daniel Coffin, and if you type in Daniel Coffin, C-O-F-F-E-E-N, and write podcast. And you search enough, you'll find it. His whole class is online, and it's one of the most okay. awesome like things to listen to. I still do it on a yearly basis. It was the greatest class I ever took. It was just so dope and psychedelic and weird and, and trippy and brilliant. So, yeah, just give it a real quick shout-out. Um, and really quickly, though, In, In the Mood for Love is, a, is my other favorite Wong Kar Wai or Wei film. Uh, mm-hmm. You might be right, actually, with the Wai. I don't know. It's... It's like one of those debates of how you pronounce the last name. I've heard it many times. I think yeah. Unspooled had this debate on, on air. <laughs> um, but I think that one's very sultry and decadent and slow and romantic. Whereas, uh, and Joey might back me up here, but Fallen Angels has got a kinetic kind of intensity. It's kind of fast-paced. And okay. it, it's, it's kind of useful. It's got a very different vibe and atmosphere to it than uh, In the Mood for Love. I think they're, they're different mood pieces to me. Yeah, for sure. Like I, I like in for mood, the in the mood for love. I just maybe it was the day I watched it, or maybe I was expecting it to be Chong King, or you know, obviously not Chong King, but it. Like I said, I enjoyed it. I thought it was a very well made movie. It just didn't strike me the same way that Chong King did. To the point of, in my playlist is the Mama and Papas now. Like, and it comes <laughs> on, and I just yeah, man. And I see the scenes from the movie and everything. So. Yeah, that that's interesting to hear. That makes me even more excited to see Fallen Angel because yeah, for in the mood for love, it really like although they had all that style, it's almost like it kind of sucks you into this trance. And at times, I kind of was losing track of what was going on. So yeah, to hear that um, Fallen Angels has a more uh, drive to it is yeah, that's exciting. All right, so um, Oscar spoiler or new Hollywood style? I'm all right here. Go talk about the Oscars. I know how you do. Now how I do, I do. All right, so I watched The Father, um, which Anthony Hopkins won Best Actor for over uh, Chadwick Boseman. So that was kind of the Oscar stunner moment. Most people expected Chadwick to be um, to get that award, and 
I mean, both guys were really, really deserving. I, I kind of wish it would have been Chadwick's moment just because, you know, it, you know, him having died and stuff. But, um, yeah. So the father is about this guy with dementia in uh, London. And it's seen through the eyes of someone um, actually experiencing dementia. So, like, the movie is, like, kind of all out of sorts. Like, he'll be talking to his daughter, who's played by one actress. And then, like, in the next scene, she's played by another actress. Like, to really... Um, make his confusion palpable and like he'll walk into the the kitchen at one point and it'll have like this certain backsplash and sink but then at other points it'll be something else and it's just constantly kind of confusing you um with what he's experiencing really giving you that um experience um another film that came out recently the sound of metal did a very similar thing where it really kind of put you in the headspace of somebody that was losing your hearing where the father puts you in the headspace of somebody um suffering and really being traumatized um, through dementia. So, um, and it's really heartbreaking because my grandmother just moved into town and I thought she was just a little bit mixed up. I mean, she'll like, we'll, we'll talk to her and she'll kind of say the same stories over and over. But recently I was kind of having a heart to heart with my mom and she's like, man, it's really tough because, you know, you can really see that, you know, she's kind of ha suffering from these dementia symptoms. So I'm looking forward to uh, getting with, together with my mother and watching this father and um, kind of seeing how she relates to that having. Um, going through that um, on a family level. That's really powerful, yeah. Um, actually, my wife, uh, her mom kind of have, is having signs, and so we're debating mm -hmm. watching it at all because it's kind of rough to watch things when mm -hmm. it feels too close to home. So that's brave and cool that you're going to do that with your mom. Yeah, looking forward to that. Yeah, it's, it's, such, a, it's such a powerful movie. I, I definitely think I need to tap into that. Um, all right, what's uh, what's what's Stan all about, Joey? Stan, I'm going to double double Stan here uh, for in a way, um, because I'm going to talk about the Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Okay. It's not technically a movie, but Letterbox lets you log it. So. Oh yeah, it does. <laughs> yeah. So, um, Stan, as in I stand for Sebastian Stan, because ah. boy, like I'm gonna be real, like I have no problem with the Falcon becoming the new Captain America, and I get it. Damn it. Why couldn't it have been Sebastian Stan? <laughs> That's all mm -hmm. I wanted out of that whole show was just was just the Winter Soldier. I, I just, my favorite Marvel movie is the Winter Soldier um, mm -hmm. because, you know, it's a spy movie more than a superhero movie, even though they're super soldiers. But, um, no, I just had a, I had a really good, good time watching it. Uh, I think I watched, like, one episode one night one the next morning and then i came home from work and just watched all the rest of them so i watched them all in like 24 hours um because i don't i don't do the week by week thing like so you know disney or d plus keeps releasing all these shows you know week by week by week and then i'm just like all right everyone's talking about mando well, i guess i'm gonna wait till the end hmm. everyone's talking about wanda i'll wait till the end but um <laughs> you know it had like a lot of good action and i did really enjoy the story i think the, the one big trip up to me was the, the the next to last episode where it starts off hot and heavy um, from the big reveal or the big thing that happens at the end of episode four into five with that really killer fight scene, um, which kind of mirrored the fight from Civil War. And then the whole rest of the episode is like, it's supposed to be building to this big, like, ep, you know, season finale in the next episode. And then they spend most of the episode just like, chilling on the boat in louisiana and it's like not that that was bad but it just was it's like it's like build 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 all right we're gonna stop chill next episode 
Man, all the way to the to the end there. So, um, and Agent Thirteen coming back was really cool. Um, mm-hmm. I won't I won't do the say the thing that happens with her, but I fucking called it, and it made me so happy that I was correct. So. That's funny you say that uh, the second to the last episode was, you know, kind of out of the groove because I was so into that episode that I actually uh, wrote about it a little early and then that kind of kind of um, blew my, uh, you know, momentum there. But um, yeah, I wasn't going to watch these uh, Marvel shows at first, but then uh, the WandaVision was going on and they showed the whole Quicksilver reveal and I'm like, well, geez, I got to got to catch up with that but i've been really digging the uh, disney plus's week by week thing it gives me something to look forward to every friday uh like right now i'm watching the, the mighty ducks game changers every friday uh paul have you checked out checked that one out yet absolutely not i'm so okay. curious how's that going it's so oh goodness um so it, it takes a lot of plot beats from the original mighty ducks but it's stretched into like this whole like seven hour span so we're like in the original Mighty Ducks, you're like, okay, we, we want to see them start winning already. You know, it's really, really um, a slow burn to get to, uh, you know, some eventual success. But now that it's finally getting there, it's, you know, that much more rewarding. So it's been a, it's been a really interesting ride. There's been a lot of great cameos in it. Um, Emilio Escobes is Gordon Bombay in it. It kind of has um, the Luke Skywalker syndrome from The Last Jedi where he's just like, yeah, I know it was super cool before, but yeah, I'm just kind of not interested anymore. <laughs> it's like, why? Because <laughs> the show says he has to be. So that's one of those that's little funny. hang-ups. Yeah. yeah. But um, otherwise, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a lot of fun. And um, my kids look forward to watching, to it, um, watching it too. So it's kind of a fun family affair each Friday. Yeah, we definitely have to catch up on that. We'll probably cover it. Hopefully, maybe we'll we'll talk to you about it. We'll come. I'll have you come on real quick to to briefly go over that on one of our special episodes because we'll do mini series and and shows once in a while. So yeah, you guys inspired me to watch The Last Dance, um, which I was super um, glad that yeah I was uh, you guys really built it up for me and it, it did not disappoint. Yeah, no, that one's such an encapsulation of the 90s it's just like living in the 90s again for those 10 episodes that's why i loved it i need to watch that so badly (laughs) yeah it's so good it's so so good and there's like an episode dedicated pretty much to every player for Mm -hmm. the most part that was a key player so you get your rodman episode you kind of get a half episode for steve curry then you get an episode for pippen you get an episode basically for phil jackson yeah and triangle offense yeah, they're such eccentrics. That's what I love of them. They're, uh, Jordan, too. He's an eccentric in his own right. Um, mm-hmm. They're all eccentrics, and so they're just fascinating people, besides being a part of this dynasty that was one of a kind. So, I mean, well said. So, yeah, if you grew up in the 90s, I mean, you either, you either hated the Bulls or you loved the Bulls, and there was no, there's like no in between. And if you lived in like Indiana, in New York, especially, there was you did not love Chicago Bulls. Mm-hmm. Absolutely not, no. And you you really relive those rivalries through that documentary. So those are their two main rivalries. After the biggest rivalry, perhaps, is when they got beat up for years by the Detroit Pistons, and those games were insane. The level of physicality, the way that they just beat up the Bulls year after year until yeah. they finally, yeah. It's so much different than like watching basketball now where it's like they look at a person and it's a foul. <laughs> yeah, Jordan and I talk about that a lot. 
it's like the crybaby era, right? And they just, mm -hmm. you know, just go over the top and flailing their arms and moaning to the refs. And like back then, Jordan, Jordan was a pretty slight NBA player. You know, he's he's buff, but he's like not, you know, Ewing on the on the Pistons and stuff. Or actually, that's the New York Knicks. But he's not these big guys that would just beat him down. But he would take it, and he learned that he had to stick in it and man up. And that's part of their like coming-of-age story. That's part of their arc, is, like, the ability to step up to these bullies and punch them back in the mouth, kind of. Mm -hmm. and... That and is an interesting thing, like, if you take looking at, like, how basketball and football especially were played back then, they're so much more physical. I mean, obviously, football is still very physical with the kind of athletes and stuff they have, but they were much more geared towards more of the original style of the game, and as their TV ratings and stuff got bigger, you saw the rules start skewing Mm -hmm. towards towards offense you know like you yeah. can't and, and so you see the point totals and stuff go up i mean like if you hit 100 points during like the bulls era of like the 90s you're like it's a high scoring game and you know there's games where they're almost at 100 points at halftime now and it's like good lord yeah no that's definitely true and that, uh, there's a lot of reasons for that but one of it is the physicality has been mitigated greatly I mean, mm -hmm. they definitely perfected the mechanics of three-point shooting in ways that they didn't have back then, right? So, like, you know, Curry's unreal. Like, he's unprecedented what, what he can hit. But And there's going to be more and more players like him. But still, like, it's it has to do with the change of the format and structure and flow of the game. Um, yeah. And I love those gritty basketball games. Um, just a quick shout-out. Like, I'm a huge college basketball fan. And this year, the UCLA Bruins had a great run in March Madness. And people were loving it because they represented old school basketball. They actually play tough, single possession games and make teams grind it out. That's how they had a huge run. And it was just like a, a, a tribute to how basketball used to be played to watch them. So, yeah. Nice. Yeah. And like we were talking about, I guess, to keep on this tangent of, of basketball, like <laughs> in Jordan's day, you didn't have people like Dirk Nowitzki, just, you know, a seven foot power forward slash center shooting, running and shooting threes. You know, he was dealing with, you know, Dominique Wilkins and Patrick Ewing and Matumbo and these just big, imposing centers who rebounded everything and blocked everything. And, yeah, it's just a, how much the game has changed. So, Absolutely, yeah. Great conversation here. But uh, we, we Justin laughs. I'm thinking we got to move on from basketball. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, no worries. Good to hear about all the y'all's passion for the sport. Um, so my last one, uh, you kind of inspired me when you had mentioned your first renaissance um, in the movie Loving Paul earlier. And I would say mine kind of happened in high school when I got really obsessed with like Oscar films. So that's when I first saw Midnight Cowboy. Um, it's notorious for being, you know, the, the one X-rated movie to win um, Best Picture. I didn't remember much about it from back then, but man, watching it now, it's so full of this just luscious style. And it's such a bummer movie, too. I mean, you don't really, really pull for the characters because the main guy, uh, Joe Buck, I think his name is, um, played by, um, oh goodness, what is his name? Um, Not Dustin Hoffman, the other guy. The other guy, um, who's a national treasure, and I think he's uh, Robert Redford, Angelina Jolie's dad, or something. Um, oh, yeah, Voight. John Voight. John, John Voight, Voight, yeah. So he plays Joe Buck, and he's kind of like this uh, wannabe kind of cowboy guy who thinks he's going to go up to New York and be this gigolo. And then, uh, gosh, Dustin Trans uh, Dustin Hoffman totally transforms into this um, real scuzzy. Um, 
uh, kind of con man and to see them come together and it's such a bummer movie but at the same time it's just so rich with all this this uh, new American um, Hollywood cinema style and um, I that was an instant five star in my book I was really impressed with what Midnight Cowboy um, pulled off back then nice totally. I should probably check that out yeah it's definitely in that that what they call the, rena- the new American renaissance right the 70s era where they got a bit grittier um, mm-hmm. the converse, conversation you could throw in there we were talking in our slap shot episode that that could be thrown in there absolutely i, I think slap shot in its own gritty way fits in yeah, that, that makes sense mm-hmm. uh, once as well when i was pretty young and it is a seedy movie right uh it's got yeah a sordid plot but it, it definitely brings you into it and it, it just has such a great sense of uh atmosphere mm-hmm. and character building yeah it's a classic i want to i want to return to that now yeah, and I um, one of the podcasts you had introduced me to when we first met was uh, Unspooled, and I went back and listened to their episode and just how they dissected like how like the music even kind of speaks to Joe Buck's mentality of him like being totally oblivious to anything around him. It's such such a clever movie. All right, well, well, without any further, oh, did you have something else, Paul? No, no, I definitely have to listen to that episode. I haven't heard it. It's one of the ones I I somehow skipped. Gotcha. All right, so let's get into our feature movie of this episode, Inherit Vice. Um, Joey, you picked it. You uh, dish out that plot synopsis from, I'm guessing, IMDb? Yeah, it's from IMDb. Um, So in 1970, drug-fueled Los Angeles private investigator Larry Doc Sportello investigates the disappearance of a former girlfriend. So, Justin, I think, like, I shocked you a (laughs) bit when I picked this. um, You gave me Paul Thomas Anderson... Mm-hmm. Um, what what did you think I was going to pick instead of this? I had I thought you were going to pick Boogie Nights just because I don't know that it's I guess it seems like a flashier film on the surface. Um, you know I would really have hoped that you would have picked um, one of my favorite movies of all time. There will be blood, um, but instead you picked um, Inherit Vice, which. I have an interesting history with so like that was one of the la- the last um, Paul Thomas Anderson movies I had watched and I kind of was looking into it before I watched it and I think I even watched an interview with Paul Thomas Anderson and he's just like you know sometimes I just kind of get lost in the plot and that's okay and I kept hearing about how like incomprehensible this plot was in this movie and so that's kind of how I approached it the first time like I just kind of let it wash over me and a lot of stuff really didn't sink in where this time I have seen a lot more noir slash noir. So I've seen like The Big Sleep since this. I've seen The Long Goodbye. I've seen, um, I rewatched The Big Lebowski. Um, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. You got some of that in there too. So watching all these other noir films really complements, I kind of, what, um, you know, I think uh, PTA was kind of doing with this um this approach to noir now um i, I want to go ahead and throw it to paul early on because you said you've read um you've read some of this author before it's pincham yeah thomas pinchin uh he's an icon in postmodern literature uh, mm-hmm. i studied literature in college so he is like the 20th century american great um but he's very polarizing too so uh to, to, to explain thomas pinchin um is tough, but a lot of terms can be thrown out that kind of help just quickly um, kind of summarize what he is. He's, he's encyclopedic, 
Uh, so I mean, his, his novels like are like a tome of information, whether it's history, science, rocketry. He's really geeky and nerdy about all this stuff too. And he's really stony about it all too. So he likes, has a really stony take on everything. Um, he's always writing these sprawling like thousand page novels filled with uh, ensemble characters that are quirky names and there's so many you can't keep track of and it's just layers on layers of paranoia. Um, and so I guess in a weird way, Inherent Vice is kind of perfect because his his plots are almost incomprehensible and yet you're still rolling with the tide. Like you're still flowing with it. You're still having a groovy time and there's connections being made that you're, you're savvy to. And there, there, there's a lot of intelligence going on and seething behind the scene there's all this commentary uh, often about 60s and 70s culture about gentrification about nixon um mm -hmm. but you know he, he has novels set entirely like in the early 20th century or like one is about two map surveyors i believe in the 19th century mapping out the mason mason dixon line he has another one about the world fair in chicago so he likes discrete time periods as well so um trying to actually wrap this up um he's one of the great postmodern novelists because he's super meta he's filled with paranoia you never know what to believe and you're always kept on your toes and you're never fully satisfied and so i think that's why people like and don't like inherent vice as well it's, it really did a good job encapsulating what pension is as a as an author it's very much a marriage of uh our anderson who i consider like our great author like he's he can do no wrong to me um, and Pynchon, who I actually have a, a love-hate relationship as most people do with Pynchon. I've read Gravity's Rainbow, um, the audiobook at least, I listened to it, uh, Against the Day. I'm, I'm talking like each of these are a thousand pages. Uh, the Crying Lot of 49, if there's any listener or if you guys want a uh, Pynchon Light, it's an amazing novel. It's like 180 pages. It's very uh, cogent comparatively, and it's it's got like surfer rockers in the 60s and hippies and dive bars and this cool like trail of neo-noir detective uh like it's like a puzzle that kind of slowly is figured out so that one's great it's the closest one i would say the sibling to inherent vice they're the mm -hmm. most similar novels and so i've read that one three times the other one's only once um but uh he's worth it he's worth a, a try a, at least an attempt at if, if you're going to get into literature at any point. But yeah, he's he's a tough cookie, and this is a tough film. I've seen it four times, and I'm still a little puzzled. And I've listened to the audiobook for it, so uh, oh, wow. it's, it, yeah, it's a tough one to decrypt always. So uh, um, yeah, super appreciate that perspective because I thought you know he was just into like writing noir. So to to hear that he's into all kinds of different. Um, you know, eras and, um, you know, storytelling. And I mean, that perfectly matches up with PTA because what PTA is all about capturing different eras too, whether it be, you know, what he does in Boogie Nights and what he does in, um, you know, There Will Be Blood and, and so forth. So, um, wow, what a, what a combination of artists there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, PTA Anderson actually said he wanted to adapt Vineland and Mason and Dixon first, but they were just literally impossible. They're just too abstruse. They're too mm -hmm. big. Uh, they're too inscrutable. He could not do it. So he he finally found Inherent Vice, which is actually a pretty new novel. I think it came out in, the, like I don't know, in the early 2000s it came out, uh, mm -hmm. not that long ago. Um, so, uh, and this guy's career spanned over 40 years, and he's a famous recluse too, so he has this cool 
persona. The Simpsons have had Pynchon on as a character, like fictionalized in The Simpsons a few times, but okay. like almost no one knows what he looks like and no one ever sees him. And he just cracks out these epic, epic novels like every like 10 years or so. Um, and he just keeps, uh, you know, the literary world uh, constantly odd, but a little bit baffled and annoyed too. So he's, he's kind of a, a tricky trickster figure <laughs> in, in that scene. So I think we've done a pretty good job of kind of drawing the outline of how obtuse this movie is. Now, I'm really curious to hear uh, Joey color in the picture and say, you know, what he dug so much about this movie, which I was shocked by. So, oh, um, well, I mean, I, apparently I was going to like it from the get because, you know, according to you, I'm obsessed with noir. Mm-hmm. So... And to give a little context to that, like Joey was all about him with some uh, some Humphrey Bogart and the Maltese Falcon, where I was like, I really like that character, but this movie, this plot doesn't do a lot for me. So that just gives you some context there. Oh, well, that and, you know, like, I guess, you know, I never really thought of Lebowski as a noir movie. Noir is such a, like, the first time I heard, like, I won't say the first time, but, you know, started as like oh it's a noir movie and so i kind of like well what is noir and then you know mm-hmm. there's no like hard and fast definition it's like mm-hmm. i wouldn't put like you asked me what i thought about this movie compared to lebowski and i was just like why the fuck is he asking me oh. why these two movies are you know connected um and then you know, i kind of thought about it a little bit and i was like i i can see it you know some they both kind of got these like kind of crazy and out there um plots and yeah, kind of a story that doesn't go anywhere, right? I mean, yeah. And I, I mean, saw one of your, I saw one of your notes, which kind of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? I was I was suspicious about one of the things, and I guess it kind of solidified my suspicion and then added to it, to a way. So we'll we'll get there in a bit when we get there. Okay. Um, so like the, I I made some notes here, and I think a little different than how you go about it, but um. Like, first off, the cast. Like, the first thing as soon as I saw, like, the mm-hmm. cast list. Like, the cast is just stacked. I mean, Joaquin Phoenix, Josh Brolin, uh, Maya Rudolph, Martin Short, um, Eric Roberts, I think. Like, um, he's always the bad guy in everything. So if you see him, you just you just know. Um, you know what's then, special about Maya Rudolph being in this movie? You want to let the cat out of the bag on that one, Paul? Was it her first time not doing something comedic? Like, they're married. P.T. It's P.T. Anderson's wife. Oh, okay. Well, that makes uh, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. At least he, at least he doesn't do like um, Kate Beckinsale and uh, Mila Jokovic's husband and just puts them in everything. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) So, um, the the first thing, like honestly, I think part of the reason I like the movie so much is is Joaquin is just he's stupid good in this movie. I guess I should just say he's stupid good in general, but he was mm-hmm. stupid good in this movie. Um, and the, also the whole time I kept thinking like, what is Leonard from the big bang theory doing in this movie? But it was just the way they had his hair and everything. He just really reminded me of that. Um, the whole seventies, I guess, late sixties, early seventies aesthetic, just, you know, stuck out, you know, they're on the beach and they're, you know, they're calling hippies and it's, you know, just, people who want to hang out and smoke weed um, versus, and then you see like uh, Josh Brolin's character, Bigfoot. And, you know, that's 
the whole their normal life and you know just that whole how everything was you know, i guess the juxtaposition between that and then there were definitely parts um especially when they're more at the beach where there's this kind of like um interesting tint and coloration to the movie that i just just um really enjoyed so um i, I do think the it went wonky or like because i know it was thick but then it went wonky in some places and it's just like is this supposed to be like a drug trip almost kind of like you know from doc being a stoner hippie kind of thing and then he also just kept slipping out of these crazy crazy situations um you know from getting bashed in the head with a bat and waking up next to a dead body or having was like 20 kilos of heroin and living like it's just uh it was it was just wonky and crazy and i just really really dug it um so oh and we forgot um, Owen Wilson. Owen Wilson's yeah. in the movie. Martin Short. And, yeah. I'll, I'll go ahead with my Owen Wilson, my bad. Oh, he's just uh, he's a dead, he's a sax player, right? He's just a dead sax player. Oh, yeah. Dead in quotations. Uh, who's also like a snitch for everybody, nobody, everybody. Um, so I just kind of sat there the whole movie kind of going like, man, what, what kind of absurdity is going to happen next and it typically never disappointed and then um the whole thing at the end with the oh I'm, like i'm a sucker for a love story so you know that whole thing played into it and then you know the, the you know, this doesn't mean we're back together and so it's just um just just it just kind of captivated me the whole time and i'll let justin kind of start more of the the actual points of the plot well, I was curious, Paul, like, so where did you kind of start with this movie and where where are you at with it now? Yeah, I started a little cold to it, actually. I'm such a huge fan of P.T. Anderson and such a huge fan of Tension, even though, like, you know, I, I have a sort of strange back and forth uh, take on Tension's work. I'm still like a mega fan, spent so much time with him. Um, so it was... It should have been amazing, and probably my expectations had to come back to earth after a viewing or two. Um, but it always mesmerized me, um, just as much as his novels did. Um, you said a lot there. Cur- really curious, and I want to speak more, but I'm just curious, uh, Joey, real quick. Uh, who is your favorite actor? All these big actors in these kind of tiny roles, right? We have, we, like, I, I don't even know. You probably did. We mentioned Reese Witherspoon. Um, oh, yeah. I completely yeah. forgot. That was one of the things in my review, that they were back together in a movie was her and Joaquin. Yeah, right? Um, and uh, there's just so many great actors. Um, and they're all in kind of small roles for their stature, right? Like, I mean, Owen Wilson can lead most films, and he's just a uh, kind of an afterthought in this film. So who surprised you the most? Let's take Joaquin out, because this is Joaquin's film. He's utterly amazing in it, I, as you already noted, right? He steals the movie. He can do no wrong. Um, but besides that, like, other than the small roles, like Jenna Malone's in it, um, does a pretty good job. Um, Justin, are we missing anyone? I feel like we're missing still some actors. There's so many good actors. Did you say Martin Short? Yeah, we, we've said Martin Short about four times, actually, I think. Oh, did you? Um, yeah, because oh. I said it, and then you said it, and said it again. This is probably only three times, but, um. Did we say Martin Short? Who's <laughs> Martin Short? I don't know what the actor's name is, but the, like the two real snooty cops who are like giving Joaquin Phoenix crap. Like I recognize one of them. I think he's a comic or something. I don't know his name, but he really stood out to me as well. Whoever that is. 
Yeah, that tall, lanky guy. I, mm-hmm. he, he stood out to me too, but I don't know where. He's, he's one of those faces that are so familiar and they're in mm-hmm. everything, but you don't know where they're from. Yeah. But as um, far as stealing, mm-hmm. I, honestly, he was only in it for a small part, but Martin Short always kind of, I think, steals everything. <laughs> um, yeah. And he's just, he's always these like really over the top, like animated characters and at least everything i've seen him in which i don't think is a lot but just enough that every time i see him i'm like bro this guy um, greedy little hippie <laughs> so say what well, his then he have a lot well doesn't he like pull out some kind of um upper inhalant kind of thing and joaquin's all diving and snorting as much as he can he's just like hey you dirty little hippie and he's like running out with his pants what? like halfway below his knees yeah yeah all oh, right yeah, yeah he's hooking up with all the patients or whatever in japonica why yeah. i remember that i guess because it's japonica yeah the, the, name, the names are so good right i mean that that's pinching to a t his quirky names just get at something they're very cartoonish but they're fun the names yeah. but um, yeah i think i think martin short like he fit that role not knowing especially anything about the book but just like he fit the role it fit the movie um in that like is this is this really happening and then you do you have this like serious thing where it's like oh this is where they're doing all this weird dentistry stuff and you start you know seeing pieces get put together and um you know and then like the, the scene where you lead up to that building where you know he's remembering this uh, event with um uh i've forgotten her name um with with the missing girlfriend and mm-hmm. he walks down and then it's like oh there's this building here that you could see where they had kind of looked like they had started construction in the um in the memory so that was that was kind of cool as oh well. the rain just, scene yeah oh that was real beautiful yeah yeah that scene is so lovely right so melancholic and mm-hmm. then the, you know young song is just so plaintive and beautiful i mean that that scene really i think gets at you like no other in the film right it just feels like an yeah it, the tone shifts there though it definitely feels like nostalgic and melancholic suddenly it's so weird how what um, they lead up to it with like a Ouija board. Like all of a sudden he's just like instantly knowing where this new drug den is, and then they go and you know have that scene. It's a very strange build up to it. Oh, yeah, and the, and, yeah, and the fact that they weren't just like on like a date or something, and that happened. It was that they were like speeding through the rain to find weed because it had been a dry spell for however long, and then you get this this whole um that whole sequence. So. The music alone, too, in this film is, a, is just amazing to me. Uh, so well done. I mean, Johnny Greenland did the score, which is actually one of the, I think, lesser scores in terms of the P.T. Anderson films. Right there, mm-hmm. Blood is amazing. Phantom Thread is amazing. This one kind of gets lost, but actually his I totally drops, agree. Yeah. His needle drops, though, in this movie are great. That that early song, which is uh, Can, kind of a Krautrock band from, I think, Germany. It's called Vitamin C. It's one of the great songs with that beat. Um I'll, I'll botch it if I try to mimic it with like my voice, but uh, it starts off in the very beginning, right? In in that where you you were saying, Joey, like the color tints were great, right? Like on the beach, and he's outside on that kind of um, Venice beach like street, and they start with that beat and that song, and it takes you for like the next ten minutes. He lets the whole song play, and it just becomes hypnotic. It's so good, and the way the beat comes with the title card. I love the beginning with the music and uh, a lot of the, the songs throughout like the Velvet Underground, I think, are in it, or at least music that evokes the Velvet Underground are just great and great and great. 
Um, Martin Short, I like that you picked. I mean, are you familiar with Phil Spector at all? Phil Spector? Yeah. Not off the top of my head. Okay. So Phil Spector was famous for creating what's called the Wall of Sound. He's also famous for murdering a bunch of people. Um, and so he's kind of like an O.J. Simpson figure. Um, he was crazy, megalomaniac, but like made like all of these great albums. Um, I think from Beach Boys albums, a lot of like Motown, a lot of pop albums back in the 60s created the Wall of Sound. He looks exactly like Martin Short. And when I was seeing Martin Short in this role, because it's set in this period as well, I was like, oh, he is so perfectly cast for like a crazed drug addict type character. And I was just like, we've got to create a Phil Spector film. Pronto with Martin Short in the role. So I <laughs> thought of that mm-hmm. definitely um, right away. I-, I love Benicio Del Toro in this just because. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can't forget him right across from Joaquin, like two of my all time favorite actors just like hanging out and ordering weird food like eel cakes and jellyfish, which is another pension pension motif. He always has these quirky ass foods that people eat. Um, it's, the little humor in this is hard to hard to get, right? Um, mm-hmm. But there's so much tiny, tiny nuance of humor. I think it's a hilarious movie first and foremost. That's what I got from it now on my fourth watch. Mm-hmm. Just how funny it is. Um, almost like wall to wall with jokes, actually. Punctuated by these real moments of melancholy um, and kind of sinister, stony, insidious vibe that goes on. So it's a cool balance, but it's, it's definitely a comedy in there, too. Yeah, definitely picking up all the all those themes. I mean, um, one of the uh, noirs I forgot to mention was Chinatown. Like the whole like disappearance of the one guy is very Chinatown, and the whole like um, how they're redeveloping this area is very Chinatown. And then like the whole like story where it's like not kind. I really picked up on the fact this time about it's not about it. This is one of these movies where it's not about where it's going. It's about the journey to get there and through the eyes of this kind of like stoner um, PI who's really lamenting the fact that, um, you know, the 60s have come to an end. This hippie era has come to an end. And now you're merging into the more serious straight laced um, world of what, what Josh Brolin's character represents. So I was definitely picking up the whole uh, fear and loathing vibe. And <laughs> Benicio just showing up and being like, yeah, I'm this man's attorney. I'm like, holy crap, there's fear and loathing right there. And I don't know how I didn't pick up on that the first time. And um uh, in in terms of characters like Brolin, yeah, I mean, he he really really stands out because he's such a parody of himself in this movie. He's um, like the chocolate banana scene where like <laughs> Joaquin's just kind of looking at him and it's like kind of fuzzy with Joaquin in the background, but he's just you know he's just gnawing on this chocolate banana, very phallic like. It's just like ugh. And um, there's a part where he's talking to him in his office and he's doing all these like sex gestures with his hands. And then um, the more I look through the movie, I see like. Um, how he makes little cameo appearances like he's in that commercial at the very beginning with the afro or whatever talking about the land development and then later on whenever he's stoned out of his mind he's um he shows up in this random cop tv show and then i i I have a pretty good feeling that that final scene with him must have been like a whole a hallucination where like what he's like eating marijuana off a plate or something after like busting into his place it's really interesting to think about what in this movie actually happens and what 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 part of his just this um, drug drug daze that he's in. No, so, so, so well said. I'm just going to pick up really quick before I pass it to you, Joey, too. But I, yeah. I love some of the things you said there specifically. Because 
this does play with those noirs. Chinatown, right, is so on point because of the gentrification, because of this sort of sinister uh, syndicate of money in L.A. that's that's doing these nefarious things behind the scenes um, because of, like, the paranoia that Chinatown really is based on. And then you also earlier brought up The Last Goodbye, which is Altman, which P.T. Anderson has always paid homage to Altman. That's, like, his great, like... Oh, yeah, Magnolia, uh, 100%. News, right, Magnolia, yeah, 100%, right? Um, and you kind of get the sort of... I love The Long Goodbye because it's a very... Uh, as they call this kind of a shaggy dog detective film that's kind of lazy and, and goofy and slow but serious but mm -hmm. I, definitely the big lebowski comes in here too because it's about like a stoner who kind of is in over his head mm -hmm. constantly gets pulled deeper and deeper into this story that kind of goes nowhere but it, in that sense it's it's really uh really similar and parallel um, mm -hmm. but the last thing I want to talk about is the relationship or the, the, the dynamic the juxtaposition between Bigfoot and Doc Sportello because that's so central here. And I like that you brought up uh, Bigfoot's basically the 70s. He's basically Nixon incarnate. Mm -hmm. um, his crew cut, his square head, his square jaw, um, his weird sort of uh, homoerotic uh, right. love of like chocolate bananas is strange. And there's that weird scene in the car where um, Doc Spatello, Joaquin, is sitting there just watching him mm -hmm. eat that that frozen banana is very, very bizarre. And I read a really cool review uh, by Matt Ziller um, at uh, Ebert's namesake. And uh, I'm not going to get into the quotes or anything, but he says that he thinks they have actually like a weird love story and they get each other. <laughs> and I'm just paraphrasing here, but I think he's on he's on to something. I, and and um, he also says that Doc constantly is trashing Doc. Uh, he's beating up his property, his feelings, his body. And yet, at the same time, he's equally, like, inept and incompetent and, like, at the whim of other people, like his wife. And uh, oh, yeah. they, he kind of picks on the hippie, right, because he needs to pick on someone. But they have this sort of uh, bromance going on that's really strange. And they're kind of one of the kind. They're kind of both bumbling, stumbling figures that really don't know what they're doing. So as much as, like, the cop hates the hippie and the hippie hates the cop, they're they're both basically cops. One's a PI, one's a real cop. But like, it, it's weird that they, they have so much overlap, right? Mm -hmm. Besides their their contrast, that is a really cool uh, dichotomy going on, right? The, the conservative versus the liberal. You could say like the bell bottom dudes versus the suit dudes, uh, blue state, whatever you want to divide it as. Like, they kind of represent those, and yet they're the same. And I like that they're making this this comparison and saying like. We're not that different, but anyways, uh, I, Joey, um, I'll let you take it. Oh yeah. So one of talking about the relationship between uh, between Doc and uh, Bigfoot. So I don't remember why. I think there was this, something I thought was said, or maybe I just kind of put it together in my own head. I felt like Bigfoot had was like part of their group or something, and then like did the proverbial growing up, and you know became a cop versus. A, a PI, you know, went more straight laced for, you know, whatever reason, I guess he thought he had to get a big boy job or something. And so I thought maybe they had known each other with the way that they had um, interacted and um, that kind of stuff with each other. But like you said, yeah, it is almost like there's this bromance where just one is almost like the bigger brother and he, he picks on and beats up the little brother, but no one else can do that. Like, 
when when like the golden fang gets involved he's like i'm no 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 like i can beat you up but these guys can't um so that that was a really interesting part of the movie was seeing them interact with each other um basically throughout the whole movie um it's crazy how many scenes there are of them actually talking on the phone when i was flicking back through it it's like they're almost constantly on the phone like in a lot of these cut scenes yeah and it like, I guess that's, uh, you know, also something we don't see in, like, newer, usually newer movies because, you know, they're they're set more modern. And so you don't see people on a phone talking. You see them texting mm-hmm. or, you know, what have you. But, you know, to see them on, like, you know, house phones and all that kind of stuff was, uh, was real refreshing um, as well. I kind of wanted to dive into the style of the film. So I guess one of my main disappointments with this movie when I first saw it um, is just because P.T. Anderson is um, so he he paints such a broad canvas like there. I the the first scene that comes to my mind is the master when you see Joaquin Phoenix running through this huge field. It's just these big epic um, scope and really interesting angles and kind of bizarre music that really makes me um it's it's kind of kubrick vibe i would say really draws me in and then but inherent vice is so i was i was listening to one video essay and it it mentioned like how a lot of the scenes like it starts kind of wide but just gets closer and closer and closer these two guys faces and you know that's the majority of it um the one part that kind of stood out to me is whenever he's walking into that office of the the golden fang and it's from like a um a side shot and it's very kubrick where how he's kind of like walking through the door up into the um the reception desk i was like oh yeah i can definitely um you know that that's kubrick to a t or even tarkovsky so um one of the things i noticed was although this is a very dark and um kind of gritty looking movie it's also extremely colorful um like you go in that the scene where they go into like the um, closet of ties that have all like the the naked women on it. I mean, so much color there, but at the same time, it still has these. Um, it has this dark overall aesthetic. So. Yeah, it's definitely a sunlit noir, as I saw many people mention. Right, it's it's a noir that's we call neo noir, but set in daylight. And uh, what I did also gravitate towards on my return viewings of this is how subtly visually stunning it is. Um, from like the opening shot where we have Joanna Newsom, who's our narrator, um, really quick trivia with her. Uh, there's, a, there's a ton of uh, funny connections that she has. First of all, she's an awesome folk singer um, with a really, really weird sound. Um, but second of all, she's the daughter of the governor of California. So you've probably heard over the past year all the politics and the craziness of Gavin Newsom and Trump and stuff. Um, I'm just guessing, have you? Um, not sure. Okay. Anyways, and then third, she's married to Andy Samberg. Uh, am I mispronouncing that? Um, the the film last year, the Time Loop film. Uh, oh right. The, um, oh goodness. The comedian, uh, Addy, yeah, yeah. Uh, I want to say it's Paradise something, isn't it? Um, what is it? Called, that movie called? Um, oh, I'm I'm on it. Hold on. <laughs> it's like. Uh, called 21 or is it called joshua tree or 21 what is it called palm springs palm springs palm springs duh like i live yeah. in you know, groundhog day like, what's the city <laughs> name right yeah anyway she's married to him she's got all these connections if she's not really an actress but she was in this film but you know it starts off with her talking doing the narration actually on the screen and then you get this really psychedelic 
overlay, right? Like a double exposure of like mm -hmm. a blue light. And then it kind of enters into that image, right? Or when Doc Spatello gets knocked out, um, or actually doesn't get knocked out, you have this great shot of him walking into that sort of, um, I don't even know what to call it, but it's kind of, a, it's part of the Aryan Brotherhood's um, uh, new residential the center. The massage what? parlor? The massage parlor, right? That was exactly, it's the, the quote unquote massage parlor. All right. And then suddenly you get the flags on the screen and then it subtly merges into the shot of Joaquin Phoenix lying on the dirt next to, um, he's such a great name, I forget the guy's character's name, but it's so great, um, who he kills or we don't know what's going on, right? But there's all the cops, right? There's so mm -hmm. many transitions that are so skillfully done here. There's mm -hmm. another technique that he does where characters are constantly walking into the scene, but you can't see their heads and they're talking. Um, this happens with uh, Bigfoot's wife, where she comes and belittles him when he's on the phone in that very like uh, ornate house that they live in. This mm -hmm. also happens at the retreat center in Ojai, um, when uh, the wife of Wolfman, uh, the, the main missing character dude, uh, when Joaquin goes to meet up with her, right, and she has that young, handsome boyfriend with the like short shorts, all right. He walks in the scene. We never really see his head until later. They're doing, uh, he's doing really interesting stuff. A lot of low shots um, visually, right? And a lot of comedic gags visually. The, the three dudes picking their nose in the scene where he's talking with the detectives. Did you notice that with the guy just going at it in the background? Um, that I was impressed with. Like, there's a lot of subtleties going on here that yeah. <laughs> were hilarious. But um, uh, yeah, so did you notice any of the stylistic elements, Joey? Um, I mean, like, it was one of the, like, I noticed mostly, like, the tint and stuff. I definitely feel like just talking about this movie, like, it's where it seems like I'm kind of blanking out. It's that I'm sitting here trying to remember, like, man, I really need to go rewatch this movie. Like, because I, blur. it's kind of a hard yeah. movie to talk about beat for beat because so many different stuff happens and so much, so much of it's inconsequential i mean you have that one actor that was so famous from boardwalk empire the black guy who i mean it's a great scene but it's i mean it i guess that kind of sets up the whole aryan brotherhood but um and like he's doing he's like wait a minute you said you did business with who um so just little moments like that throughout um and i love how like the 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 voiceover so i guess in modern movie criticism so many people criticize having voiceover but um in noir, that's kind of one of the signature elements, and I really like how it's this this fantasy kind of girl that's doing it, kind of giving us this insight of like him and the era instead of exactly what he's thinking, because I don't even think he knows what he's thinking. He's kind of all just always in this daze. So um, it, I didn't really pick up on it either time I watched the movie how like these uh, sequences with these two girls are pretty much as is fantasy or even maybe maybe it's his memory it's it's kind of hard to tell and that was what i was you know, alluding to earlier so i uh, the narrator is uh is that sort of sort of um i guess that's her name um and part of the way through the movie i was just like is this chick even real because you know, I never, I never thought about uh, Shasta not being real, but the other chick, I definitely was just like, is this, is this just someone talking to him, like you know, in his head, like talking to him, kind of deal. Um, 
and I just I kept trying to figure that out once once I kind of had latched onto that I was just trying to figure it out but then there's a because she's the one that they're playing the Ouija board with if my memory serves me correctly and I was just like okay maybe she is real but I could never I could never really pinpoint it and I guess that was kind of the idea they just you don't really know what's what the hell is happening yeah, she's an interesting framing device, and she's also one of the few creative licenses that P.T. Anderson takes from the novel, where she's in the novel, she's a character, and she is in a few scenes in the film like that are real scenes, like the pizza parlor at the very beginning. She's next to him, and she kind of actually says it, but it really quickly, I didn't catch that to my third time, where she says, like, she brings herself into the moment with the narration, um, and so you get, okay, now she's embedded in the story, but... The other problem is that she also looks a lot like Shasta to me, um, Joanna Newsom and uh, Watterson, uh, the, the actresses. And so I got that confused the first time because they look so much alike to me that I was like, wait, we have like Shasta who's uh, commissioning Doc or at least trying to seduce him to do this like detective work for him. And then we have this voiceover who knows everything and is omniscient. And I thought they were the same pe- person. It got me very confused, but they are separate. But I do think that your suspicion of, like, is she real, is she imaginary, is what ultimately P.T. Anderson wants. Um, and I read that in a few, few reviews where they're like, I'm 90% she was actually a character, but I'm not 100% sure. And uh, I think that's what he really wants. He wants that phantasmagoric sensation in the audience that, like, am I hallucinating? Is this real? At all points, right? Like... You mentioned the scene with the the character from Boardwalk Empire, and he's constantly writing on his notebook, like hyper paranoia <laughs> alert. Like, yeah, he's just constantly writing notes himself, like questions. Yeah, he's just like writing his impressions of the interview instead of anything going on in the interview. <laughs> it's like it, it doesn't matter what the guy's saying; he just wants to like notate the vibe of the interview, which was very interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and Joey, coming into this, like, it is an artsier film, uh, and a and a and a kind of an enigmatic one, a, a, a trippy one. Uh, how well were you able to follow along? Like, uh, was this your first viewing? And if so, like, did you keep up? I mean, yeah, this was my, this was my first, uh, first time watching this. I think it's my third PTA film. I saw Boogie Nights when I was really young and I, I, I was a teenager. So of course I was just like drugs, porn stars. Oh my God. <laughs> uh, you know, I think everyone in that time period, you know, kind of fell in love with Heather Graham. Cause she, you know, she was, in that and then she was in American Woman and then she was in uh Austin Powers and so it was just you know she was kind of a big deal um but then I saw a few years ago well let's say I guess a few several years ago now um the aforementioned There Will Be Blood because I watched it and um what's the movie with no Josh Brolin Frol- in it No Country for Old Men yeah I like how you just knew what I was I watched both of them pretty close to one another um and I didn't really really dig either one of them but at the time it was before i had kind of changed my, my taste haven't changed as much like i'd be really interested in going back to watch no country for old men and i probably should go back and watch there will be blood but i every time i think about it it just i like fall asleep um, it's definitely a flawed masterpiece but um that's for another conversation but i mean Oh man, the guy who's won 800 Oscars and is in oh Daniel Day Lewis. Yeah, DDL. So like he's such a powerhouse of performer that like that would be the part that would interest me in that movie. But as far as keeping up with this, like I I felt for the most part I kept up with it um, really well. It's definitely 
it's, it's not a fear and loathing in Las Vegas where like I had not tripped enough acid to follow that movie. Um, so like, I, I thought I, for the most part, kept up with the, you know, the, the interwoven storyline. Like, you know, I'm used to stuff being, um, disjointed, you know, being a, a big T, uh, QT fan. So, I mean, obviously this is a different style of just stuff being disjointed, but, um, I, I actually kind of really dug a lot of that, you know, how it kept you, you know, on the edge of, or kept me on the edge of my seat because some of it was the discombobulation, but then it was also everything that was happening. So I thought it was a real good mix of all that kind of stuff. To follow up on the theme, um, it's, it's interesting with this quote, um, inherent vice in a maritime insurance policy is anything that you can't avoid. Eggs break, chocolate melts, glass shatters. The doc wondered what that meant when it applied to his ex-old lady. So it's definitely like lamenting um, like this past relationship, I guess, or lamenting this lost era of the 60s. So um, it's really cool to... Uh, it, uh, um, it was nice to kind of see that spell. It's kind of like when you first noticed the... Um, the the, the wave rolled in um, line from Fear and Loathing, um, if, you, if you follow me, Paul. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, it has this vibe of inevitability, too, right? Like, that, that sin will happen, the fall will happen, <laughs> the wave will crash, right? And that yeah. is the, like, ethos of this film, is it's steeped in that kind of bitterness of the 70s where the like high of the of the stoner vibe or wave has crashed and now everyone's just kind of puzzled and confused and everything's a little foggy mm-hmm. um, yeah it's definitely not a glamorous depiction of of that era as much as it is um an exploration of its aftermath too <laughs> and the fogginess that came so i, I love that quote i mean that's pinching to a t and i love the examples he uses they're just so perfect right like these qualities of these substances are embedded with decay or fallible properties, right? Chocolate melts. What was the other one? Um, Eggs break. Eggs break, glass shatters, right? Mm -hmm. Like everything has its its own kryptonite, its own weak point. And Mm -hmm. it's like, where are those weak points? What are the seductive forces that draw them out? Um, And that's also this film, like it's filled with sin. Um, It's filled with, uh, drug abuse, right? It's filled with people uh, being drawn into worlds and underworlds and uh, dark schemes. Uh, yeah, I, I definitely it, it encapsulates um, the vague theme that's going on because it is quite vague at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's very rewarding when that finally kind of really comes out within all the subtleties put together. Anybody entranced by uh, Joaquin Phoenix uh, mutton chops in this? Oh, I mean, bro, they were they were epic. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure you remember Justin uh, when when we you know probably the last time we saw each other in college, where uh, I had the I had the big old chops back then, and I thought oh, they you? were the coolest thing. <laughs> well, yeah, because I was like 18, and I was like, oh look, I can grow I can't grow a beard, but I can grow these big old mutton chops. And I thought they were like the greatest thing. And the few nice. pictures that are exist from that time period of me, I see them now, and I cringe. I cringe real hard. Yeah, I love his chops. I love the fact that he gives himself a perm in the beginning. Um, oh, is that what like the little the little blue things hanging off his head? Was that what, it, what that was going yeah, on there? That's what okay. it is. Yeah, that's <laughs> what Hold on, it's not a perm. It's the set. It's a permanent. Uh, <laughs> sure, Sorry. Sure. 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 
yeah. my bad. Um, but no, he got great mutton chops, great shaggy dog look. Um, Absolutely. And I love it when he gets all snazzy with that brown suit, too. I, I like that shift in his getup. Uh, yeah, no matter what they did with him, he's just uh, perfectly cast in this role. It's, it's, it's far better than... Um, uh, no, I won't say that, but it, it's up there with his great roles. He, I mean, he never almost says wrong, but uh, I actually like Joker. I mean, it's a hot take in some circles. I think he's just great in Joker, but mm-hmm. I, I even like this. <laughs> okay. Um, and I mean, despite all these brilliant moments, there's still like it's still kind of a frustrating film at points. Like I would say, the one point where I kind of zoned out is whenever um, kind of the seduction scene where like she's naked and like. Kind of crawling up on him on the couch or whatever before that really intense um like sex scene all of a sudden and until that happened i was kind of zoned out of what exactly was going on and then i kind of like snapped back to it once you know we had that aggressive love making scene so it's i mean it's it's funny to listen back to like critics at the time and just everybody noting how frustrating it is but it's really one of those movies that really has to um kind of uh, re- reverberate um, several times before re- it really sinks into what it's getting at, which it makes you know it was very rewarding cinema. Absolutely, I think that's one of the most potent scenes though too of, of him using style to mimic the substance or mimic the like uh, pace and temporality of the scene where she's talking to him in this very monotone way for minutes, and he I think he's trying to bore you uh-huh. into this emphatic moment i think he's trying to put you into like a hypnotic state and also mm-hmm. almost a dozy state and then to like smack you or spank you awake right like literally she gets on screen mm-hmm. um, right um he does that a few times with like these really drawn out scenes there's a scene where they're in that tunnel uh it's him and uh walking phoenix doc and uh, i forget the name of the character but it's the uh What's the character's name? The kind of saxophonist who... Oh, the Owen Wilson played Owen Wilson's character. I'm I'm, I'm blanking on his name, though. But um, they have this long conversation that the camera slowly pans into, Mm -hmm. like, minute by minute. Um, So, yeah, it's definitely kind of drawn out in moments. His name is Coy, by the way. Thank you, Coy. Yeah. Um, Joey, Joey, Joey for the win. (laughs) There's definitely a lot of juvenile juvenile humor in this. Uh, the anecdote or of it in the slash vignette of his wife about how they didn't meet cute but met dirty in the bathroom stall is is pretty raunchy stuff. Like when you hear that about how he was taking a, a gringo shit and she was throwing up. And oh, that's how they, did you not catch that? Like it's like no, I missed that part entirely. Oh yeah, that's how they met, and then she ends up like. Um, performing, a, let's just say, a, a favor for him in the mm-hmm. stall in this very gross moment. I mean, it's trying to really push taboos, and it constantly does it. Um, and it's going for a quirky uh, humor that's super raunchy and risque that you you can miss because it doesn't scream it. it, it it's very subtle as well, so it's it's weird. Um, were there any moments that were gaffs for either of you? Like, they just didn't work at all. That's what I wanted to ask, too. Hmm. Hmm. Just, you said didn't work? Like, or, uh... Yeah. 
I think within the context of this film, like I, they probably would have become forgettable to me at this point. Like I'll, I'll run through a few moments that really stood out to me. Um, like the whole like mock uh, Last Supper with the pizzas. That's like a photograph. That was kind of a moment for me. Um, Josh Brolin's character yelling for pancakes in his Japanese restaurant was pretty, um, pretty memorable. Uh, they're touring that um, health facility. And the doctor starts mouthing the words of this anti-communist um, kind of rhetoric in this movie. Uh, so many little moments. Um, it's hard for me to say. I, I would say my big flaw with it would be the fact that, you know, like I had iterated before, that, you know, there are these these scenes where you kind of get lost and, you know, kind of put it into a trance. Um, and, and that should be a good thing, but it's kind of, it kind of plays with you. So it, it's, it's kind of confusing. Um. I really remember the uh, the scene where he's outside and he's talking to I think her name's Jade and it's like real foggy and they're like in a like a back alley, um, or at least it seemed like it was a back alley. And if I'm not mistaken, that's when like Koi comes through at some point, or another another person comes through like out of the fog and there's just um, I don't know. I just like the way the, the way it looked. It, and then like you said, the the pizza that was uh, I thought that was really interesting because I was just not what I was expecting there for whatever reason. But then I was just like, Oh, well it's stoner food. And this, yeah, like, I don't know. It just stood out. It, like that it was, I thought it was weird, but at the same time, when you thought about it, it like made sense. Totally. Yeah. That, uh, foggy scene in the alley stuck out to me too. Um, in back to that scene where doc meets Jenna Malone's character, she talks about how she has these fake teeth, right? At one point oh, she right. hands him a picture and Joaquin Phoenix, like, shock, like, shockingly, like, jumps in. <laughs> You're already laughing, right? Oh! Weirdest, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the weirdest moment in the film, though. It's yeah. such a weird Comes film. out of nowhere. Like, out of nowhere, right? Did, did that work for you? Did it throw you out? Did it, like, was it jarring in a good way or a bad way? I'm so trying to get my head around that because I was like, that's so tonally off. Mm -hmm. And yet, you you know you're with a great, like, P.T. Anderson that you know he approved it. So you have to question your instinct and like, maybe it was supposed to be that way, but I think yeah. it almost works like that rough sex scene where it, it's this sudden contrast and um, what's going on all of a sudden that really snaps you back into it. It's just like, Hey, wake up, wake up. Okay, here we go. So <laughs> for sure. For sure. So yeah, the, the, to me, like I, I, I kind of forgotten about that whole, that, that weird scream until you just talked about it. And I was just like, Oh yeah, that is a thing that happened. And I remember thinking like, was it really that bad or was he just overplaying it to like appease her? Cause she's like, Oh my God, it's so bad. She shows him the picture and he's just like, ah, and it's just like, like just <laughs> oh, kind of overselling. Um, he, I don't know. Yeah. That's kind of, I mean, and it's so weird cause we're sitting, you know, we, we that's how I took it, but it was just like, y'all are like, Oh, this is this like crowd of movement that, broke you know broke the scene or whatever and, and i'm just like yeah he's just i think he's overreacting i don't know it's it's, it's really hard hard to say and interesting to to look at yeah it, yeah it seemed visceral but it seemed also kind of cartoonish so that exactly what you're saying i was left like what was the effect of this and what was his intention what was his thought like was it real or not i don't know mm -hmm. sorry uh, one thing I like is the whole um, idea of what the Golden Fang, what represents, where what they're selling these drugs and it causes these people's teeth to fall out. And then so they run this like um, tax, um, some kind of 
tax thing, um, dentist office or whatever, where they put the teeth back in. So it's this whole like um, consumer industrial complex kind of deal that's um, that they're uh, roping people into, which I guess is definitely kind of a sign of American culture, you know, modernizing. Um, I'm not sure if I would say it was as early as the 70s. I mean, it might have. But um, but yeah, it's definitely where things are going with American society, with consumerism. Have you ever seen that episode? You ever seen that episode of South Park where um, they're selling like the uh, the how valuable gold is or whatever, and then the grandparents will like buy the gold and they'll give it to the kids, and the kids will melt it down and sell the gold, and it's this never-ending cycle of selling gold. <laughs> so kind of reminds me of that. That's yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. <laughs> Never seen that. I also love the building though, the Golden Bing building. That looks mm-hmm. so cool. Um, and uh, what's the name of the ship in the film? The, the main ship that. Um. Is it the Golden Fang too? I think I thought it they the called it. Thing. I thought they did yeah. call it the Golden Fang That's too. It's, yeah, yeah. it's really kind of playing with what your expectations of what this Golden Fang is because it keeps cha- it kind of keeps changing forms. Yeah, because that is. Go ahead. No, no, no. Go ahead, Joey. I was going to say, yeah, because it's the boat is the Golden Fang, and then they start kind of referring to the people who work on it as the Golden Fang, like like a gang called like the Golden Fang. Like a syndicate, Fang. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then he walks into the building, and it's like Golden Fang. It's literally, a, it's usually this big Golden Tooth thing. <laughs> so. Yeah. Um, I'm curious what you think, Paul, about... Um, so a lot of people come into this movie and it's like, oh, this is incoherent vice, ha, 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 hot take. But, um, I mean, the movie does kind of deliver a pretty thrilling climax with, you know, him getting uh, handcuffed in the neo-Nazi uh, den or whatever and him having a little gun moment. I mean, it, the movie does give you this, you know, climax with um, with how it wraps up. It just takes, you know, a lot of, like, muddling around to get there. So um, any initial thoughts on, you know, it actually paying off in that way? Yeah, I mean, actually, now that I've watched it four times, I think this is very coherent. It's tough. It's very hard to follow, but it actually all kind of comes in. And like we were mentioning, all the different golden fangs, that's kind of brilliant, right? It's like this mutable protean uh, clue that just reappears. And it also lends to the like disorientation of, or the delusional aspect of what is real, what is not, what is like the lead, what is not the lead, what is the pattern to find, what is not the pattern. And uh, the fact that it kind of all kind of wraps up in, uh, like you said, kind of has an action thrilling denouement of like a finale that's rousing on a cinematic level too. I thought it was great. Uh, Joey, did you like the ending? Because the ending was pretty, pretty actually kind of action packed for a film like this. I thought. Um, yeah, like I mean, you 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 know you get to see Joaquin, his character, you know, shoots that guy, um, and you know these. Did like, I get you? Try... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Did I get you? Just like before he walks in there, I'm like, I'm pretty sure you got him pretty well. And he walks in there and he's like triple tap in the chest. I'm like, yeah, he's, he's pretty dead. Um, and then, you know, you've got, you got Brolin. He's like, come on, we got, just let's go. And he's like, or he's telling him that Brolin, that we have to go. And you Brolin's just like, yeah, I'm gonna take these drugs. There's plenty for evidence. And it's like, Broad. He's like, we gotta go get your car out of impound, and I was just like, yeah, I see what's about to happen here, and show sure enough, show sure enough. Um, but yeah, no, it, it did have a, a a good a good payoff for um going through everything. 
It's kind of funny how, um, and at the end of the day, Doc doesn't buy into this whole like consumerism thing where he like he trades the drugs and just gets his uh, his butt out of um, you know whatever pickle he was in, and um, you know just kind of moves on with life and doesn't really exploit it and you know get a bunch of money out of it. Yeah, that too is really humbling, right? There's like a decency to his character that's quite endearing throughout. Like he he may be a you know what they call the shaggy dog detective with no goals or ambitions, but that's the, like his his attribute that is redemptive as well. He's not just like a capitalist scumbag who's constantly trying to like better himself at the cost of others. I mean, you kind of appreciate that out of his character. He's genuine too. Um, and that's just real talk, I guess, as well. All right, let's get to ratings. Let's go around the room. We do it a letterbox style here. So um, out of five stars, uh, Paul, uh, how would you rate this one after your fourth viewing? That's easy because I did my letterbox review today. So it's four and a half. Uh, I do half stars, but that's cool. And it's before anti half stars. But no, half stars are fine. And uh, it's my lowest of, I think, the P.T. Anderson films uh, almost, which is crazy. I'm a huge fan of it, but four and a half. How about you, Joey? I also gave it four and a half. So where you're like, it's almost your least favorite. I'm obviously not as familiar with him, but I would, you know, basically not really being able to remember a lot of Boogie Nights. Like, I definitely you know, probably say it's my highest rated one. Um, so, but I, you know, like I said, I haven't watched a ton of them. Um, I do want to watch more. I was very interested in Punch Drunk Love uh, and was going to pick it even against the, the behest of Justin uh, but I, I started, which wouldn't have been all that bad. It's just, I had seen it a few months ago. So that's fair. Um, I, but I started like reading the review and you know, like synopsis and stuff. And I was just like, no, this movie sounds really dope. So I guess maybe I really do like noir films. Cause it's what I was like, yo, let's go for sure. <laughs> so when I first saw this film a few years ago, I started off at a three and a half just because I really wasn't getting into it. And I'm um, just, it, it kind of lost me. And then this most recent watch, I definitely moved it up to a four. But man, after this conversation, I'm really, uh, the themes that we've been kind of digging into are, you know, really flushing out even more to me. So I'm getting my golden fangs into them. And um, yeah, I'll move it up to a four and a half and join you, boss, with that four and a half rating. I see what you did there, by the way. Nice. Yeah, you know, I like nice. the wordplay. I like that wordplay, sinking the fangs in. All right, Joe, you wrote this uh, little toss to break here, so I will let you have it. All right. Right after, the, right after the break, we will talk about an American tragedy and the woman who lived through it. All right. We're back on the Average Joe's Movie Club cast with our guests, Paul, Joey, and I'm Justin. And our next movie is Jackie from 2016. Um, get into the plot synopsis following the assassination of President John F. Kennedy, First Lady uh, Jacqueline uh, Kennedy fights through grief and trauma to regain her faith, console her children, and define her husband's historic legacy. That definitely sums it up quite nicely. Um, also from IMDb, just to throw that out there. For the record. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Paul, I'll let you go first. Um, had, had you seen this one before? Yes, I had actually. So this is the second viewing. I, I think I rushed watched my first one. It was in my binge kind of watch phase. I definitely remember it being a huge Oscar talk for Natalie Portman's role, uh, rightfully so. Um, I was interested to read some 
different takes, though. Some people thought that she was a little stilted. Her accent was a little too strong for some, and some people loved her accent. So um, I, I kind of felt both. It took me about a quarter of the film to really vibe with her. And then once I did, I was all in. Like, I thought her performance was amazing by the end. But at first, just because it is so accented and uh, so caricature even if, though she's like trying not to be and she's such she's such a force and central focal point of every shot that I, I thought it came off as too strong almost at first and then I slowly eased into it that's just my honest honest reaction because I think she does an awesome amazing job it's like one of those great performances that I uh, am impressed by but on a visceral level it took me a little bit to get into um, but I loved it, uh, actually, this time way more. I thought that um, the framing device was a little weak. Um, that was probably my only weak point that we can get into, was the, you know, the interview with the reporter. I liked what it was doing on a meta level, on a narrative level, and what it did to the story about the construct of one's mythology and one's legacy and the way that you have to sort of uh, edit and censor and control your narrative, much in the same way that we talked about, like with Jordan in The, the Last Dance, um, and how he's constantly trying to uh, take control and own his own narrative. Um, but I don't know what it was about it. Perhaps it was uh, Billy Crudup. I thought he was strangely, like, I don't know if he's usually cast. He just acted a little strange in it, and I, I just didn't he was fully definitely it. cold for a journalist, which is a little peculiar. Yeah, it, it was like he was in a slightly different film, um, and hmm. I thought that I uh, Bobby Kennedy, played by um, you know one of my recurringly favorite small actors, Peter Sarsgaard, was great but intermittently coming in and out of the accent like a few scenes he really had that like uh, boston massachusetts kennedy accent and a few scenes it was a little less pronounced i thought that was strange um and then richard e grant uh to me i i love richard e grant he's like an unsung hero everything he's in and such a small role but i love richard e grant in here and greta gerwig too she had a very warm casual role that i found kind of adorable <laughs> mm -hmm. Very consoling. Uh, yeah, yeah, I definitely did a double take when I saw her. I didn't expect her in this at all. Um, you know, pre her going uh, the directorial route with uh, Lady Bird. Um, Joey, your overall thoughts? I really thought the movie was like I think it's a very good movie. Like like easily like just a really good movie. And, and you know, hearing that she got Oscar Oscar blah, 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 Oscar talk for the role really makes sense. I mean, like I think she really brought it. And then. As far as the the accent, like I remember, like when she first started talking, I was like, okay, this is like a really like this is really strong, but like the more you watch the movie, it just it, it it just became her voice, what it was you know what you were supposed to be, um, you know I I, I thought the whole it really really um, as far as its vibe being like really drab and dreary, but it kind of fit everything that was happening like it. If this movie had been real bright and vibrant and then we were talking about a funeral and a death and like all oh, it just wouldn't have worked. So like I think um that like the the kind of muted tones really fit especially against like the pop of just like a, a pink dress or the pink lipstick or the blood 
um, in the scene. So, like, I thought that was all done super swell. Awesome. Um, I would say, yeah, I, I was hearing a lot of that same kind of criticism where people weren't, you know, necessarily on board. But I guess I was just so emotionally um, connected with this one so early on. Like some of the, the like the real traumatic scenes of like right during the assassination. I mean, we there, you see a lot of blood there. I think my, by far my favorite moment was whenever she finally gives, goes in the shower and you see the wave of blood, you know, washing out of her hair finally. I was just... I was actually brought to tears in a few moments of just how emotionally powerful this thing was. And I thought it was very clever how, like, there was the, not only was there the framing device of the interview, but there's the framing device of the whole White House tour, which um, really goes, um, is a sub, kind of a subtextual element of the whole legacy thing. Like, you know, you're leaving your legacy of, like, decorating these rooms. And, you know, John didn't like how, you know, she was being extravagant, but at the same time, she knew she, they needed to leave their mark. And um, I really like that scene where, um, you know, Bobby's like, man, we, we only had this much time. We could have done so much more, um, really kind of hammering on, um, you know, the legacy of it all. And so it was very interesting to see her be nervous in a television kind of tour thing on top. So it's, it's her acting as Jackie Kennedy, acting, you know, to be mannered and very eloquent on camera, which is very layered performance. So I, it really sucked me in early on. Yeah, I, I really like the, the, the flashbacks, especially that kind of bigger one at the beginning, um, because it first popped on the screen and I was like, oh, man, they they're going to use actual footage. Like this, it was my first thought until, you know, then you see Natalie Portman on screen and it's like, OK, it's not. But they they they, they took the time. I want to to like do more than just a filter, you know, like the, to, to make it look like it would have then like I in, instead of just putting you in her in like in her shoes while she's doing it they're like they made you watch it um you know like you would have back then and i thought that was a really cool touch yeah absolutely i love that it was still natalie portman even though there's like real footage of that i think it was life magazine documentary uh, sponsored tour of the white house but that was the key theme that i fixated upon in my letterbox review was the uh, tour of the White House as her primary characteristic of this film was introducing and the moral conundrum of whether she was proceeding to uh, go forth with her public appearance in the funeral as a as a act of vanity or as an act of preserving and honoring the legacy of JFK. And I think that they played it very fairly, very complexly, and with tons of nuance and it constantly kept you on your like toes morally of like how do you approach this what are the proper uh protocols and what is the etiquette here yeah and she's aware of it and uh and it's really about also all of the uh not to make it too gendered but it constantly is like men telling her all these things uh, even jfk earlier telling her that her interest in uh, renovating the White House was frivolous, right? Behind the scenes, she talks about how he thought it was uh, like kind of a waste of money, kind of superfluous. And that is definitely a gendered thing. Like, I think women definitely interior, uh, draw, are drawn to interior decorating in a way that, that guys aren't. And we'll, we'll spend our money on, you know, boats and DVD collections and all these sorts of things, right? We'll definitely be very flippant towards like decorating. Um, 
And it sounds so, so frivolous when I'm talking about it, but I think it actually had weight in this film of like, here's a woman taking her, her, her stature seriously and living and exhibiting and emanating eloquence and stateliness and charisma at the highest level as JFK did. Because really what they both were, more than anything, even more than politicians, were icons. They're American icons. And so that's why this film was very powerful. It was like about an icon being told all these things and then going at the very end and doing it as she wanted to do it. Like the power of her going through and walking along DC at this funeral and the bravery of that, having just witnessed your your husband assassinated like next to you is pretty uh, inspiring is the wrong word, but it's pretty stunning. It definitely had me impressed. I, I did not uh, think so deeply about that part of the whole JFK um, scenario and of, uh, event. You know, everyone fixates on like who shot him. Uh, you know, the multiple angles, all the all the conspiracies. We don't. We don't. We never looked at like just Jackie's uh, experience. I, I thought that that was a really interesting angle to take, and they did it in a, in a really um, complex and deep way. So I, I really appreciated this film. I thought that it was a great um, piece of postmodern cinema in the, in the way that it's not revisionist history, but it's taking history from a new perspective that we never offered. before. Didn't she even have a line to where like? You know, I'll walk. You know, you know, uh, um, you know, for my husband's legacy in this procession. And I mean, let them shoot me; they'll put me out of my misery. I think was was kind of a line that they alluded to at one point. Totally, yeah. So she is. Uh, it's a daring act. It's it's it's. Uh, it's I mean, almost bite, and it kind of and it kind of bites her in the ass at one point because she was not aware of Oswald getting shot, and then she kind of paraded her children out there, and she definitely regretted that. Um, at that one point, but then, you know, ended up, you know, shielding them and then moving forward with the, you know, the giant procession there at the end. Absolutely, yes. And uh, the other thing that this film does so well is it's stylized in a way that brings what would be mediocre material and elevates it exponentially. And uh, starting with, like, what you mentioned, the scene in the shower where she's uh, letting the blood roll off. I mean, of course, it's so different than like Psycho, but I kept thinking of like horror film kind of tropes. And there's oh, definitely. definitely, yeah, like a horror film element going on. I in... love the scenes of her just kind of walking slowly through the different White House rooms, and she's in the very center of the shot, and you have this really eerie music that kind of has this kind of sound to it. Which um, I was, I had seen that. I guess the same um, composer as Under the Skin did this soundtrack, so that was awesome to see and, and it really really kind of um, personified or or illustrated her isolation where she's in these huge rooms but she's in the very center just walking slowly and we're just following along so it definitely captured that um isolation she was feeling in those moments of you know losing her husband all of a sudden and you know what do i do now i have to move out i have to do this i have to do that and and you bring up the feminist perspective of you know not only um you know are women really into like interior design but they're also very um schedulistic a lot of times with you know they want to make sure they're doing this 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 and then and that's exactly how she had to go about doing it and um going against all these forces here were you know telling her like like what lbj is like you know 
you, you can kind of she's kind of feeling the pressure of him wanting to move in and her move out but at the same time she has to make sure you know she doesn't leave any uh, stone unturned so um joey any thoughts i mean i think you you said pretty much everything there really well um because everything you know she's got so much she's trying to handle you know she's dealing with like loss the loss of her husband but then you know you've got um lbj's like hey uh can you guys move out and she's like bruh he's not even in the ground yet like Hmm. and then so you've got you know bobby's running interference which i i found him to be a really annoying character um i'm not saying that he like like the, the the actor did a bad job it was just that um you know he uh, the the one scene you just you just mentioned it um where i really he, liked his character because he was kind of like the jfk conduit like we since jfk gets assassinated we don't really get the political aspect of like the legacy but um bobby kind of mentions certain aspects of it whether it be like how he handled the cuban missile crisis and so forth a lot of the things i think about when i think of jfk's legacy and this the mission to space. Well, yes, and he that he does well, but you know, he he's sitting there like talking about um, oh, we just needed more time, we could have done this and this and this, you know. And it's like, bruh, don't you think that she needs more time, you know, with the father of her children and like I, it just seemed like where he's thinking, like he's thinking more of as 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 a I guess a senator versus at that point being her brother-in-law and like it just like I, I don't know it just it irked me the wrong way like maybe i just perceived it wrong it just kind of it just kind of rubbed me the wrong way like it wasn't huh. like bad or anything it was just like bro you're being really like insensitive um but maybe like i said i just perceived it wrong or something it's, it's quite possible I think you're on, you have a point there. I think that he is a bit overly fixated on the political side in a way that was inconsiderate to her emotional state. And yet he was her big defender as well, though, right? In some other scenes, right? Where he, yeah. he like kind of was her big brother. So I, I like that he had like a dynamic uh, character that was in some moments kind of off-putting and in other moments you're... Uh, kind of celebrating all right like awesome man for you know mm -hmm. defending or sticking up protecting uh, Jackie um, but yeah I definitely was found him abrasive at times as well uh, I, I love that you brought up the score I feel like the score is the unsung hero of this film uh, it really propels each scene and it's so haunting with those strings that kind of pause they're very minimalistic um, it turns it into like a like that's what really gives it the horror haunted house type vibe. Like a, with the the montage where she's trying on the dresses and drinking, and I think it's the Camelot even in that scene though is another amazing scene um, where she just constantly. It, it was confusing to me at first. I was like, are these different moments in time? And a no, she just keeps on trying different dresses, right? Kind of playing like a little girl, um, costuming herself up. Um, but I also love the focus on the gravitas of trivial things. And I, I even think that's too weighted of a term that has too much judgment. But um, it kind of depicts Jackie as this very mannered woman who takes every small detail of life 
and gives it a lot of weight and importance, right? Just as like JFK is a politician who's dealing with like the Cuban Missile Crisis, right? Uh, these macro level things. She's in the world, the realm of the micro, um, and I feel like it is a tribute to the importance of these things, because these are big decisions, as weird as they are. Like the way she held herself and the way she showed composure and poise and elegance after his death spoke like, uh, you know, it did wonders for the nation's psyche and, and healing and recovery, and it showed strength and fortitude. <laughs> so it, it, it's these small gestures and acts have such magnitude. I love this film uh, took the time to imbue them with, with uh, you know, sort of a cinematic cap, a, a weight to them. I, I thought that this was a really powerful film for focusing on such uh, quote-unquote trifling things. I thought an interesting subtle aspect was they do kind of allude to the fact that he was a son of a bitch in a way because they don't actually directly say it, but they kind of hint, you know, like the affair with Marilyn Monroe's there and stuff. And that's all very sub uh, subtextual, but you can kind of see it on her face where, you know, parts of him, she really, you know, like, er, but at the same time, you know, she just has to persevere through that part of it and, um, you know, let Camelot reign. No, totally. They definitely had some jabs at JFK for being kind of a dick. <laughs> to just be straight up, right? Like, okay, you could tell you cheated on her. You could tell that she was a little uh, acrimonious towards him still. Um, and that kind of informed her. Uh, and I wouldn't say she was cold. She was definitely distraught. Um, but there was a little bit of iciness about it all. Um, and uh, it, which is strange, too. It's like she was kind of in a state of shock throughout. And I mean, the most brutal scene is when she has to tell her kids and the way she has to try to mm-hmm. uh, translate it into a language that is palatable for mm-hmm. them and how they are still not accepting it. So she gets a little more explicit in saying like mm-hmm. an evil man uh, took your dad and put him where some other person is in heaven. Mm-hmm. It, it, it just kind of gets a little. Their baby brother, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, the, the, the two younger um, siblings, early deaths or whatever. And gosh, that was a striking moment where they put the tiny coffin, you know, right there next to JFK. And have you guys ever been to Arlington before? I have not. Okay. So the um, the JFK, it's it's the eternal flame. You go up there and there's the flame for him and for Bobby there. And it's kind of on this kind of overlook area. It's a really, really cool part of the cemetery. So I really enjoyed like the aesthetic of like, you know, she's trudging through the mud, you know, trying to find the perfect place for him. And all of a sudden she stops and she's like, nope, that's not it. This is it. And yeah, it's, she did an excellent, I mean, I'm not really sure the historical accuracy of all that, but um, yeah, that was, you know, within the whole, the, the monotonous of this, you know, grave after grave after grave, you know, she had to find a, a spot with meeting and they definitely came to that. Um, it's funny to think about how, like, I remember learning about this period of history in history class, and you would hear about, like, okay, here JFK got assassinated. Oh, and then the next day, you know, um, Oswald got, gets assassinated. But I really like how this movie, this story, takes us in between those two sudden moments in history and really breaks down the personal um, trauma of it all from the people who actually experienced it. So, um, and um, so... I didn't really think much about this film whenever it got nominated for all the awards. What really kind of made it stand out for is I have a version of the the 101 movies you should see before you die. And it was very striking that I did see this was added to um, one of the latest editions of that. I was like, 
I'm really curious to kind of go in and see, you know, what they have to say about, you know, why that, why this particular movie um, was added. I mean, it makes sense for me. I was, I was very emotionally invested in this. And um, so this was made in 2016. And as I was watching it, I was just like, you know, for this being like a newer movie, the, the visuals don't really pop to me. I was like, why is that? Oh, and it's because, you know, they mix, occasionally they mix in this archival footage and to make sure it, it kind of somewhat matches. I mean, a lot of stuff looks a lot kind of old fashioned, but um, the, there's other moments that are kind of more seamless um, visually. So yeah, I, I, the muted look of the film really matched the um, time period I think it was presenting. Yeah, and Pablo Lorraine is kind of known for that. He did the same in his film, No. Uh, which is, uh, I think, a Chilean political drama uh, starring Gail Bernicio, yeah, the guy from the Motorcycle Diaries, and okay. um, E2 Mama Tambien, um, okay. and The Science of Sleep. Um, he, he's the star of that. And uh, that one's a really cool mashup of new and archival footage put together. Um, he likes to do like 8mm looking stuff and 16mm grainy archival type footage um and he also likes to play with biography and fiction um have you seen uh neruda about the great uh, i think it's chilean poet as well mm -hmm. pablo neruda oh that is fantastic you're gonna love that it's kind of a neo-noir type vibe um unreal so good that, that's got to be one you guys got to cover so uh, he's got a great actual um filmography uh, the uh the club is about uh, it's very dark material um, about the Catholic Church and priests who are uh, being punished for their transgressions uh, that are very topical and they all get sent to this home and uh, one of their victims comes to haunt them it's a really dark movie as well uh -huh. he's he's had a, a hell of a 10-year run right now um, so just go back and look up Lorraine's other films too. Yeah, that, that all of that sounds super interesting, and and talking about how he does like the the grain and stuff because that's when it's done well. It's something that I super and super enjoy in movies. So yeah, Aaron same. I, Aronofsky's a big fan of it too, right? Yeah, and actually, he was the producer for this film, right? It was Noah Oppenheim's script. Yeah, wow. and it was uh, Steven Spielberg actually wanted it for a second. But, uh, and Aronofsky did want it too, but he ended up just producing it. So, okay. yeah. Wow. Yeah, this, this definitely, I, I, if it's Spielberg had done it, I feel like it would have had a much different Tone. feel to it. I mean, mm -hmm. I mean, it seems like something he would try to do. And I think he, the movie would have been done well. I just, I, I feel like it would have been, it just would have been different. Like, maybe not if it was a, a you know, I'm, I'm because he did do Schindler's List, so I, I, he can do emotional storytelling without being poppy. But um, yeah, it's it's a good question, you know, of how would he have given it that Spielberg uplifting factor or stayed more restrained? Or and so the the gentleman who who did this movie, um, mm -hmm. is he is he older? Is or is he like a, a younger guy? He's pretty young. I think he's like in his 40s. He's Chilean as well. So it's mostly his films in like South America. He's a Latin American director. Um, okay. So, he, yeah. I was going to say that the thing, because I was actually thinking about this, you know, because we're all, we're all too young. Like we didn't, you know, we weren't even thought of. Like when, when JFK died, my, my mom wasn't even born yet. So if somebody like Spielberg, who maybe he might even have been young, but if he had lived 
through that, that might've added like a different dynamic as well. Cause I was, mm-hmm. while we were talking earlier, I was thinking about, you know, like Justin mentioned watching um, the one movie with his mom and it's like, well, you know, what if I was to watch this? Like I'd have to watch it with like one of my, like my, my aunts or uncles or mm-hmm. like my grandma or somebody who right. lived through this to see how they would perceive it to, you know, versus how we would as, you know, it's just, it's like a history lesson versus someone who lived through it. And maybe, maybe Spielberg would have brought something different that way as well. Just. Yeah. You really don't get the reception of the American people in this. Like you would in like a, a Bohemian Rhapsody where they're watching, you know, Queen up on stage, you know, rocking that concert and, or like really getting the vibes. This is a very closed film to where you never really get the impression of what America was. You just got, you just get the mannered, um, you know, um, you know, what's the word? Um, you know what what they're trying to um, portray the legacy as. Yeah, I mean, and also, I mean, it's it's very. I think that's actually good with the way this movie is done because it, you know it's called Jackie, so it's it's not. It's about her reaction and perception and everything versus how did America and I guess the rest of the world kind of perceive it. It's it's very a very narrow perception, but it's also very big in relation and considering you know that she's the husband she's the wife she's the first lady Mm -hmm. you know all that or not anymore but she's the first lady and you know all of that when this goes down so i think there was a a a good take on it as well totally yeah it's very cloistered and claustrophobic and i like that it doesn't really expand too much I, i was impressed with the parade the procession the funeral procession and how many extras they did actually get because this film seemed like almost low budget because of the way they shot it and i was curious to be an indie film like oh they definitely had something of a budget because they just had so many extras in those scenes uh, just a small weird kind of uh, strange thing to observe but i did notice that as well yeah I, I my my thought i didn't realize that it was an indie film you know but my my thought was more of like most of the scenes there's not a ton of people it's it's the interviewer and her or it's you know them in the car and there's like the three or four people in the car or on the plane you know you might get it to, but for the most part there's not really big set pieces um it's just a few actors here and there and then it was you know you said the funeral procession and then you got all the people down the sideline you know down the side of it and it was just a to me it was more visually stunning because it, it's I don't want to say seemed out of place, but it was so much different than the rest of the the movie. It was definitely in place because it's a basically a parade. Um, so that, you know that made a lot of sense, but it was just different than a lot of the rest of the movie. Absolutely, yeah. And bringing up Spielberg again, real quick, I, I definitely think Bridge of Spies and Munich kind of fit this vibe and tone quite a bit yeah, as Munich, a sort definitely. of adult adult historical drama. Um, and I think he would do a solid job. I don't think it would have been as good as this, just my humble opinion. Uh, I think that this one does a lot of experimental things that work. And um, as great as Spielberg is, he's not experimental in this way. Um, there's just some shots in here, like in that procession, where it's like the handheld camera and it follows the boy going up to the limousine. It's just phenomenal work. I, I love some shots in this film and some of the decisions. and. Uh, I think the score, kind of very Johnny Greenwood, there will be blood type score, mm-hmm. would not have been a Spielberg score. Um, so just, yeah, but very cool point that you brought up and about how Spielberg would have lived the time. He would have given an interesting film. I would be interested to see that too. But uh, cool. 
And they never give you that moment where, because there's that famous photograph of the little uh, John, you know, saluting or whatever in that same outfit. You see him plenty in that outfit, but you never see that signature moment. It kind of holds that back from you. Um, one thing I was curious about from you guys' perspective is, so the scenes with her and John Hurt talk, um, you know, her consoling her uh, priest or whatever, like... I thought they were good, but I think in the overall context of the movie, those parts I could have almost done without. I mean, it was cool to see that, like, she was angry at God about all this, but at the same time, you know, I found those to probably be the most forgettable. I I mean, I kind of think I agree with you there. Like, I, I don't think they were bad. I mean, the, the whole, you know, I wake up every day, I want to die. Um, but, you know, suicides for a coward. I was just hoping someone would be kind enough to do it for me. I think that's how it was phrased. Mm -hmm. But for, for the most part, you know, that was like, I feel like I just was like where you said you were kind of in a trance in, um, in vice. Like, that's kind of like, oh, she's talking to this guy. I'm like, okay. Um, mm -hmm. Even though there was some good stuff there, it was just, it didn't grab me, I guess, is where I'm going with that. Okay. And I thought I this, okay, go ahead, Paul. Sorry, I, I didn't love that either. I thought that it was too explicit and too much like uh, overt storytelling, whereas everything else was really showing you, like truly just showing you and giving mm -hmm. you the tone, uh, or at least dynamic interactive scenes. And it felt like that was just screenwriting 101, where it was mm -hmm. like giving you heavy themes to overlay on the film. Yeah, I, That was probably my least favorite part because it felt very heavy-handed. Okay. No, no, it was great to hear your perspective on that and that you can um, see where I'm kind of coming from there. And like how John Hurt's kind of acting like this bumbling kind of dude at first who's just trying to say the right thing. Like, yeah, I just didn't feel that match the, the overall isolation and trauma of this film. And I, and the, and the ending got me with the whole Camelot stuff. I, I wasn't really anticipating that. And then all of a sudden it happens. And I, I'm really anxious to go and read my... Um, to um, write my letterbox review and to dig into those Camelot quotes and see, you know, what what the meat of that is, because I've heard of the myth of Camelot in terms of the Kennedys, but I don't know really a lot about it. So, um, yeah, that this make this movie makes me want to dig into that even more. And gosh, it's been a pleasure talking to you guys about it. Um, any other words? Or you want to get into ratings? Uh, I'm good with going to ratings. I don't. I think we talked about it pretty well. Same. I'm excited for you to get those Camelot quotes because the way she pulls that allusion and reference to it is pretty neat, actually. It's like it, it works very, very well on that level. So I'll let you say that for your letterbox. But um, solid film. Check out all Pablo Lorraine's work. Um, he's great. Yeah, I need to do that. Um, I give it four and a half. I was very emotionally invested in this one. Um, enjoyed a lot. I'm going to um, enjoy talking about it and I'm anxious to write about it. Um, I I gave it four stars. Just um, like I said, I thought it was a very very well made movie. Just for whatever reason, and I think maybe just because of how like dreary the the, the whole movie is because of the subject matter. It just I, I don't know. I, I felt like the movie ended, and I was like, oh okay, I watched this movie. It was really good. But you know, you watch a really good movie, you're like, yo, I watched a really good movie. I was kind of like, yeah, I watched a really good movie. Like, so I I don't know. Just something. It was good, but something just didn't click. Um, talking about it and, and, you know, some, you know, with both of you guys, it just, uh, it brought in some, I guess, some stuff maybe I didn't think about um, 
or it, it reinforced it in some cases. And so I think I probably like it more after we've talked about it, but I'd still probably think it's in that four, four and a half range. I'm right there with you, Joey. I gave it a four or two, but I'm kind of wavering in that four, four and a half range, especially since these are such great companion pieces, actually. It's Different as they were, they're so different to me. Mm -hmm. They work together really well. I really thought they did. Um, and I think that they're great at what they do, but they're so tonally and narratively disparate from each other um, mm -hmm. that it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a strange pairing, but a perfect one. And uh, I would easily give this four and a half in an alternate moment, I would say. Maybe it's a little fatigue with just 60s culture stuff. Like okay. I just have a little bit of fatigue with anything to deal with, like JFK, hippies, all that stuff is just like, I, I don't know, I, I've oversaturated. But that's kind of a superficial uh, reason, so I, I would definitely try to weed that out in my rating. I don't like to rate on sort of metrics like that, but I'm just saying that might be the reason why I docked it. Cool. So awesome to uh, yeah have you on here. Um, now, if you don't mind, we're gonna do a little bit of housekeeping. We gotta prep for our next show here. Um, so Joey, where are we? Um, let's let's where are we going next? All right. So uh, well, it's not where we're going. It's you. Where are we going next? You get to uh, you get to pick from the category that I gave you, which was um, any movie directed by one Mr. Michael Bay, the great auteur Michael Bay. All right, and since we have Paul here, um, we have to take advantage of um, you know his opinion here as well. So I'm down to two movies, Paul. Um, a movie I haven't seen from Michael Bay, 13 Hours, and my favorite movie from Michael Bay, Pain and Gain. So which one should I pick? Oh man, I was actually going to say Pain and Gain. I'm actually kind of a Pain and Gain fan. Uh, do you remind me, what is 13 Hours about? That's the, ben the Benghazi. Oh, actually that one's pretty good. I, I remember thinking that was a solid film that got maligned because people don't like Bay and they don't like Berg. You know, he's kind of like Berg with these some of these films. Peter Berg, who does these kind of macho military films that have right. um Oh, it's a tough one. Those were my two calls. But since you haven't seen 13 Hours, I'm going to say go with that. Sounds good. Awesome. All right. All right. So go ahead, Joy. Go ahead. I was about to say, you're like, ooh, Pain and Gain, because that was the one I wanted you to pick, but I wasn't... <laughs> I also wasn't sure, um, as much as I like to joke about it, I know how you especially feel about the collection, and I was like secretly hoping you would pick The Rock, because I haven't watched it in a long time, and I own the Criterion DVD and just never watched it, so I was, I was kind of hoping you would go that way, but when it was like, I wanted you to pick one I hadn't seen, which was would have been Rock and, I guess, either one of these, but it would have it been Pain and Gain, so. All right. Where's the, where, where's the Wheel of Destiny taking us? All right. So the random number generator has given me the number of 26. And so that will take us to where I almost just slipped up um, to Rock and Rolla. Oh, wow. <laughs> 13 hours in Rock and Rolla. I, I, I barely remember this movie. Um, I remember Smoke and Aces. What, aren't those kind of similar films? Um, maybe. I... I I've never seen Rock and Roller, and I'm, I'm uh, so far with Guy Ritchie. It's either like I really like it or I don't like it, so I'm interested to see this. But I mean, it's got Leonidas himself in it, so whoa! I'm sitting here looking at the cast. It's like whoa, there's Idris Elba and Tom Hardy. So it's like okay, there's there's lots of people in here. Okay. 
All right. So what movie will I have or what theme will I have Joey go with, um, you know, down the road? Um, I'm finally reaching the end of my Artur series. I started with Kubrick. We went on to Tarantino and we went on to Paul Thomas Anderson. So this will be my final auteur that I throw at you. I don't think you've seen any of his movies before. Okay. Oh, oh, thank God. You were you were lining that up and I was just like, oh my God, don't do this to me. But okay, you, you didn't. So Every time I suggest a, a Lars von Trier movie, um, Joey pukes in his mouth a little bit. So. Oh, not a big fan of Breaking the Waves? Or, uh... He hasn't seen that one yet. That one we, I haven't seen. We've we've done um, Dogville, Dogville and uh, Dancer in the Dark. Yeah, and uh, who, light I, films, right? Very light, very very <laughs> Okay, nice so, Sunday afternoon watch with the grand folks. Dogville. Everything about that movie was like super appealing. It had it had a big uh, big star Nicole Kidman. The way it, it was broken into chapters, which I freaking love. And the, the, the concept of making it look kind of like a stage play or whatever, I was like, all right, this is really dope. And then after Nicole Kidman was raped the hundredth time, I was just like, okay, yeah, sure. And then James Caan shows up and does a bunch of gangster shit. And I was like, oh, okay, well, this was kind of cool. And then, yeah, that was just, it, it had so much potential to me. And then just, I, I just don't think that he and I get along super swell. I'm having, <laughs> seen nymphomaniac before i knew who he was or anything like i i remember enjoying that but i never watched the second half and it's been a, a while now since i've seen it so it's hard to say that was a fair recapitulation of dogville absolutely i remember seeing that at a time where i felt super powerless and mm. like submissive and i felt like that was just like a metaphor for just like the world owning you <laughs> Oh yeah, definitely. A very dark, 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 dark movie. Have you seen Have you seen Manderley, Paul? Uh, yes, I have. I like I like that one as well. I like all his films. I love his very first film. It's really strange. The Element one. of Crime. Yes, The Element of Crime. The okay, yeah, that's a, that's yeah, that's a very weird, dreamy one. Breaking the Waves is my favorite. Maybe one of the mm -hmm. one of these days I'll get to it. All right, so the auteur I've been building up to is Wes Anderson. Wes Anderson. Yep. Okay. What's uh... and I'm very curious to see what you'll pick since you I don't you know you don't probably know much about any of these movies and um oh, okay. Oh I So this is Royal Tenenbaum's guy, this is Rushmore guy, this is um Grand Budapest. Mm-hmm. Dar Dar Darjeeling Darjeeling Limited, yep. Very quirky. Yep. Um aesthetic uh paul i mean what's what's wes anderson in a, in a nutshell um yeah widescreen compositions lots of symmetry lots of pastel tones lots of needle drops lots of ensembles with bill murray and mm -hmm. ellen wilson um quirk childish but filled with dysfunctional families and heart as well right like kind of oh, absolutely especially the tenenbaums yeah yeah cool. yeah Great tableaus as well. Um, they're all great. I, I, I don't know which one to start with, but I would go earlier than one of the 90s or early 2000s. Just and he has, he's um, also dabbled in uh, Claymation with Fantastic Mr. Fox and Isle of Dogs, so it's a lot, lot, lot to choose from. So I'm going to be curious where you... what, Because uh, Joey's a big plot synopsis guy, so, right? Joey, mm, kinda, you kind of yeah. dig through the plot synopsis to figure out where you're going. So yeah, I'm um, curious to see where you... Uh, 
what grabs your attention? Yeah, I'm. Uh, there's a couple that I'm already kind of more leaning towards, just because I'm at least familiar with them by name. But I probably I might go through it a little bit more and look at it. But um, there's a couple that I'm I'm interested in, and I actually own one of these movies, so hmm. I just never seen it. Go with that. Yeah, that's how I live my life. I own so many movies I haven't watched. I'm trying to get through them slowly but surely. All right. It's been a pleasure, gentlemen. Um, and if you'd like to uh, you know, get a question answered on the Movie Club cast, um, yeah, we'd love to hear from you. How, how do they get in touch with us, Joey? Um, the Average Joe's Movie Club cast at gmail.com. Or, you know, since that is a mouthful and a lot to type, you can just go to our Facebook page, hit the email button, and it'll do it right for you. Um, we would love any questions, comments, you know, if you think that I give, uh, you know, very simplified reviews and shit, you know, you can tell me that and make fun of me or you can praise me or you can say good things, bad things. We just want to hear from you. <laughs> um, I mean, maybe you can be like, I think, was it Paul that suggested a movie that we ended up uh, talking about? Not Paul. Um, Max. Oh, right. The... Yeah. Um... Yeah, when we were talking about uh, Stalingrad. Yep. Yeah. So. Yeah, we take know, recommendations. We, yeah, recommendations, requests. Hey, that that's an idea, Justin. We can make a Patreon, and at a certain high enough tier, they can actually just be like, "This is the movie I want you to do." <laughs> you know. Your name's whatever. all over that task, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> one day, one day. But, so, Joey, why do we do this show? Oh, you took it from me. Oh, because we love talking about movies. It was awesome talking to you, Paul. Good night, everyone. Thanks. Good night. Oh, uh, hey, we're not going to cut out. Let Paul needs to promote himself. Paul, where, where do people find you? Sure, I'll do a little self-promotion. The, like, the, the, this is the, uh, what is it, the epilogue or the, yeah. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah, there we go. Very fitting um, for, um, you know, a noir film, right? Yeah, very, very fitting. Like the post-credit sequence. <laughs> uh, yeah, find me at Cinematic Underdogs. That's where I, uh, I'll promote. Um, we're on Spotify, iTunes, uh, Letterboxd. If you look up Cinematic Underdogs, you'll see my reviews. Um, we're on Twitter, Cinematic Under, uh, at Cinematic Under, capital C, capital U. But basically, all the main platforms, just look up Cinematic Underdogs. And if you like sports movies, you'll have some fun. You'll be entertained. So check us out. Thanks for having me on to you guys. It was a bye. It was a good time. A oh, yeah. it, was, it was very good. Very, very good. Glad you were on, joined us. Absolutely. Thank you, Joe. All right. Sure. Just my, my mate.